Hi, and welcome to Full Marks. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And today we're going to be talking about Duck Soup, which is... How many episodes have we done so far, David? This is our fifth episode. Fifth el- uh, so this is the fifth uh, Marx Brothers film as well, right? Yes. If you're not counting uh, shorts and whatnot? Yep. And yep. have they all been... Uh, well, uh, no, they haven't all been animal-themed, because the coconuts yes. was not animal-themed. Yeah. After that, uh, they seem to find a, a riff. Yeah. They're like, hey, you know what we should do after Animal Crackers is just keep on... Animal the, and on. Uh, keep it in monkey business. Okay. Horse feathers. So if uh, you soup. haven't listened to the show before, uh, we usually ramble off the top like that. Uh, we will settle <laughs> in eventually, but let me break down what this is all about. Uh, we're going through every Marx Brothers movie. Uh, David is, uh, let's say, a Marx Brothers expert. I Would we say that? I wouldn't he wouldn't, say that. but he is. Uh, he's got so many documents in front of him, so much information. Uh, let's say you're an amateur historian. Would we say that? I'm a I'm a, a lover of the game. That's right. You would in a movie you would have patches on your uh, elbows. That's that's true. A tweed and, jacket, uh, and round uh, glasses. Pretty close. Uh, yeah. When you say things, people would say in English, professor. Uh, afterwards, it would be that. And huh. uh, I'm. Uh, so I'm a French professor. Sure. Okay. Uh, it could be any language. Any language would work. Uh, and I make my living as a comedian and a cartoonist and comic book writer. Uh, I write for the New Yorker and Mad Magazine. Uh, and I'm a, a, a light fan of the Marx Brothers. Culturally, I've been exposed to the Marx Brothers. I like them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I haven't watched all the movies. So this is the first time around uh, for most of these films for me. But you have watched all of the Marx Brothers films. I have seen all of them and some of them many times. Very good. So that's uh, that's kind of the setup. Uh, if you want to listen to us talk about other things, we have another podcast called Sneaky Dragon, where we ramble on and on about uh, everything else, but tight focus on this <laughs> podcast. Laser focus, you might say. Oh. Uh, were lasers invented uh, in the time that this came out? I would, I'm would. i going to say no. All right. Strong words. Strong, I don't know. (laughs) Could be, could be not. Uh, We always start the show with a little bit of context as to where the Marx Brothers were uh, in their lives, historically, what was going on. Yeah. And so for that, I uh, yield the floor to my distinguished colleague, David. Dave? Oh, thank you for following, following Robert's rules of orders for this show. That was, that was good. Um, Yeah. So between horse feathers and duck soup, actually, uh, there was the Groucho and, and Chico were actually, had a, were, uh, I guess were offered chance, I guess I should say that way, offered the chance to do a radio program as part of, uh, a show called Five Star Theater, which was sponsored by Standard Oil. And Standard Oil started to, they wanted to put together a radio show, uh, as a reaction to the success of Edwin's Fire Chief radio program, which was a hugely popular show in its day. Now, would they be saying, so would they be calling themselves the Marx Brothers? Hosting this show? Mm-hmm. Okay, so would the idea be Harpo was part of it, you just can't hear him? No. So Harpo's not part of it? Harpo was not a character in the show. Oh, that's too bad. Yep. Uh, but not really, because, well, it wouldn't, it's not really too bad, because he his his the thing, the thing that he did wasn't really conducive to, to uh, radio. And yet neither was ventriloquism, and Edgar Bergen did quite well. Well, but ventriloquism, you still had a character. You had two characters that could interact with each other. Yes. At minimum. I understand. It just seems like a a fun joke that the guy who uh, doesn't Mm. talk would also be part of the radio show. And every so often you just react to what they're doing. Mm -hmm. That's just my opinion. And uh, I guess they were uh, too cheap to spring for the third and didn't (laughs) want to go for the Zeppo either. So, you know, just pick the two. Okay. So, um, so yeah. The fire chief, fire chief was actually it was it was sponsored by Texaco, so that's why Standard ah. Oil wanted it on the act because Fire Chief was a, a 
brand of gasoline that they sold right. that was very high octane. It had 66, uh, it was, it had an octane rating of 66, which was higher than the government requirement for fire engines. Hence it was called Fire Chief. Ah, very good. Gasoline. And, and so, um, Standard Oil wanted to promote its Esso gasoline and Esso lube motor oil. So it started, it went to an advertising company. And basically said, it was, you know, it's what we want. And so this company put together this show. It was called Five Star Theater. And the idea of it was that each day of the week it had a different show as part of this, as part of this sort of overarching oh, okay. uh, variety show. And so uh, on Monday night was Groucho and, and Chico's show, which was called, well, originally it was called Beagle, Shyster, and Beagle. And the idea of this show was that, um, that they were uh, the misadventures of a small New York law firm. With Groucho playing uh, a crooked lawyer named Waldo T. Beagle, and Chico as his assistant Emmanuel Ravelli. So going back to his Animal Crackers name, yes. And then uh, it also had an actress named Mary McCoy who played Miss Dimple, who was the secretary. So because of the nature of the show, obviously uh, Harpo and Zeppo were not asked to be part of it, just because a mute and a straight man weren't really what they wanted for the show. Seems like you could use a straight man although, any time. Although Harpo was paid a weekly salary. Even though he didn't appear in the show, oh. I guess because he was he was a member of the company, uh, Marx Brothers' company, then he got paid out of the, I guess, some of the proceeds. And Groucho and Chico were both uh, portraying their characters, their they classic were, characters. Yeah, they played. They weren't playing. I mean, they were playing different characters in the sense that Groucho was a lawyer. We haven't seen him be a lawyer. But he was using the, the Groucho voice, but using and the Chico voice. was using the Italian. That's voice. right. Okay. Exactly. Exactly right. And they were paid sixty five hundred dollars a week uh, that they shared. It was paid to both of them for the show. And so the show, so as I was saying, the show was originally called Beagle, Shyster, and Beagle, but an actual New York lawyer whose name was Beagle brought a $300,000 lawsuit against the show, <laughs> be- alleging slander and claiming the show was damaging his business and health because people were calling him up and saying, you know, is this Beagle? And they go, yes, it is. How's your, how's your friend Shyster? And then they hang up. So, uh, so by the fourth episode, Groucho, Groucho's character became Flywheel. And and it was explained in the show that he had been divorced and had returned to his maiden name. Sure. Pretty good. So, so now the show was written for the most part by uh, Nat Perrin and Arthur Sheikman, who, of course, had worked on monkey business and on horse feathers. And uh, Perrin, and, uh, Perrin said also that the first episode was uh, they rode on the train going from uh, California to New York to, to record the show. Mm. So uh, Groucho and, and Chico also had a hand in, in the writing of the show. But uh, the vast amount of material for the show, because basically it was 26 half-hour episodes. Originally, it was going to be 13 episodes, 13 half-hour episodes, but then it was renewed partway through the season for an additional 13. So it was 26 altogether. So that's 26 half-hour episodes, or 26 divided by 2 is 13. Mm -hmm. So basically 13 movies worth of material, if you think of it like that. Well, how long were the episodes? Half-hour. Well, that's not movies then, right? Oh, but wait. you know what I mean, right? Like if you yeah. if you thought of how much material it takes and how many people oh, they had okay. working All right. per, you know, they usually had like six writers or more working on the films. Okay. Uh, Perrin and Cheekman were, were doing all of the writing initially on the show. And uh, so apparently um, what happened, well, Groucho added two more writers to the writing staff, a guy named George Oppenheimer and another guy named Tom McKnight. And what, what happened though, apparently Groucho was uh, in the men's room during a break in recording, and uh, was explaining to a guy standing next to him that he could really use another writer or two to make make life easier. And there was a sudden call from one of the stalls. The guy said, I've got just the guys for you. 
<laughs> so then he hired these two, uh, George Oppenheimer and Tom McKnight. I like to think that one of them was George Oppenheimer and, or Tom McKnight, who sure. called from his thing. So, so basically, because they're on the radio treadmill, as, uh, as Fred Allen called it, the treadmill to oblivion, uh, it basically, it kind of required the cannibalizing of, of old material. Oh, so of course, yeah. Episode 17 reworked animal crackers, like, used a still, stolen painting plot. Uh, episode 19 did the same with the coconuts. Episode 23 also draws from the coconuts using the stolen diamond plot. And Animal Cracker's seven-cent nickel joke. And episode 25 used two sequences from Mikey Business. So they had some original stuff, but then they also just kind of padded it out as they went. Because, like, by the time you, you can see, uh, it was pretty, it was pretty much original material until they got to episode 17. And the last few shows, they kind of had to dig into the old stuff. To, now, to are find. these uh, episodes uh, available to be listened to? Unfortunately, the show, Although it was recorded, probably recorded uh, to be rebroadcast on the military radio, uh, it was like it was broadcast live. Most radio at that time was broadcast yes. live, but there was transcriptions mm-hmm. that were done so they could be uh, sent overseas for for military. So the military could have it played on their radio, the more popular shows anyway. And so, but apparently, all of the discs were destroyed at some point, were just thrown away, mm. and so the show was completely lost from till about. Um, I think in nineteen in the mid eighties, early eighties. Um, yeah, in nineteen eighty eight, uh, this guy, his name is Michael Barson, who worked in the United States Copyright Office at the Library of Congress, was just going through old materials and found this box and opened it up and found twenty five of the twenty six scripts that were written for the sh- the radio show had been sent there for for copyright, mm. but had just been forgotten about and were left there, and so. We do have the original scripts from the show, and because no one knew they were there, the copyright was copyright was never renewed on them, and so they actually are in public domain. Now, are any of these scripts uh, the plots from like Animal Crackers and the the one those ones you're talking yep. about? Yeah. Okay. So there's a version of Animal Crackers that is public domain. If anyone wants to mount it as a play or some such, or a radio show. Yeah, you wouldn't have the same characters. Wouldn't have the same marks for the characters, but you could use Mark because they have had. BBC in the British Broadcasting Corporation did a adaptation of them. So they, they kind of took the old shows, combined two shows together, mm-hmm. and then, uh, interpolated modern material into it, but had actors play the parts as, as Groucho, in like sort of a Groucho impersonation and a Chico impersonation. Right. Uh, and I think that, um, the NPR as well did, did a, a version, like did a couple of shows like that. And the other thing that's kind of interesting is that three. The other thing that's kind of interesting is that three shows have since then turned up. So there are actually three three episodes that are available. Recordings. Re- three recordings. Yeah. Oh of, wow. Of, of Groucho how did, and Chico how did those show. get saved? Who did who did that? Oh, I don't know. They just didn't get destroyed. They just didn't get destroyed. They just turned up somewhere. Wow. Someone, someone was probably going through. An now, old are those uh, listenable? Uh, listenable? Uh, listen toable uh, yeah. online somewhere? Yeah. If you go to Old Time Radio, um, it's a site that archives old radio shows. Yeah. Uh, and if you just search in there for fly, uh, Flywheel, Shyster um, and Flywheel, you'll find the episodes there. Fantastic. All right. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a treat. Okay. It is, yeah, it is. It's, really, it's um, I've listened to them. I think they're okay. Like, Sounds they're, about right. Yeah, you know, good radio comedy. I'm actually not a huge fan of radio comedy, from this because I feel like radio comedy for me for some reason doesn't age as well as other sure. forms of comedy. I think because of the 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 fact that it's mostly 
you know, spoken. Yeah, and I understand, know. of course, because I've worked in radio comedy for the last six years. I can see it was a cold shot at me you were just taking. So <laughs> I'm just going to say, uh, insult noted. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, same to you. I'm glad my and the horse you ran it rode in on. <laughs> the horse and, feathers and I rode back in on. Back to your uh, back to your history. <laughs> um, You're a cold man, Dedrick. <laughs> <laughs> so the show the show aired from. Uh, November 28, 1932 to 22nd of May, 1933. And like I was saying, it was recorded in New York at uh, NBC's flagship station there, WJZ, or I guess WJZ. Because, but because Groucho, Chico Perrin, and Chico lived in California, they had to make a three-day train journey oh. and another three-day trip back each week to do the show. So they wouldn't stay. They didn't stay in New York while they're doing it. They would go back and forth. Uh, each each week for the does that show. make a lick of sense even well, back then I, like you had recording equipment clearly in california wouldn't it make sense to pay for bringing the record like i understand first of all the live yeah. you know what, what what's it matter to record it live in california i guess the problem was is nbc did not have studios in in california so i didn't have a i didn't have a location where i could record the show but isn't that amazing well at that time new york was the center of the entertainment industry okay much more than California. Understood. I know that. I know that. But Hollywood, a recording studio. I know that Hollywood is, was in California, but the still the center of the entertainment Understood. world, uh, you know, in North America of that time sure, was, sure. Was, was New York. It City. just seems such a burden to yeah. to have to uh, bring your stars. And I'm sure it's, they take a train. They take a plane. Yeah, they took a train. They took a train. Mm. Uh, okay. But hey, it, wait a second. Please continue. Let me just. Let me just slightly curb your outrage. Please interrupt my interruption. Let me just curb your outrage, because after the first seven episodes, it was decided they would would record the show in California. Well, I'm glad they took my advice. (laughs) Thank you. So, Yeah, that's insane. That's a a dumb uh, cost thing. Like, the cost of building a studio at at a certain point, it it just makes more sense. They didn't borrow a studio, actually. What they did was they borrowed a soundstage from RKO Radio Pictures, and they would go in. Yeah. They'd set up chairs because uh, Chico and Groucho did not like to record, did not like to do comedy without an audience. They much preferred having people there. And that was the same with Ed Wynn. When Ed Wynn started doing Fire Chief, uh, it was a very early comedy show for radio. And I think they did like the pilot with just him and the actors in a studio. And he hated it. He sure. hated it like that. And he insisted, if he was going to do the show, he insisted that they have a live audience. And the people like... You know who were the sponsors of it? They were like, "Why? Why do you want an audience?" He says, "Like, no, I have to have an audience. Otherwise, it just doesn't feel." I just he was used to the feedback of because well, he was a vaudeville guy, and right? And there's a, there's a side reason to that, which is like, there's no there's no time you're ever going to do a comedy show where you're not going to get notes, and you're going to get notes from the sponsor, and you're going to get notes from other people. And the only ex, the only thing you can do to respond to said notes yeah. is go. I heard them laughing. Did yeah. you hear them laughing? Because mm-hmm. that shuts the notes down. Yeah. But if if you're doing it to nothing, then you've got to argue. No, this joke is good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I should continue in this style. And uh, you don't you see? And no. And just like have thirty people in the room. They laugh. Everyone goes. Huh? See? Laughter. <laughs> Done. All right. Moving on. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Because Edwin he performed to an audience of seven hundred for for a show. Not surprising. So it's a big theater, you know. And, but it's a good idea. And I mean, once the show became more and more popular, obviously you could expand the the size of the audience. Yeah. No, that's that's not surprising at all for back then. So, yeah, they bore the soundstage, they set up the chairs, and then once they were done recording, they had to put everything away and have it all ready for, for the for people to actually come in and do the like filming and stuff in the right. morning. And when you say they had to do it, Groucho I don't think didn't Groucho, have to yeah. move his own chair. I think they left. I <laughs> yeah. think they left. Well, I'm assuming there so was people well. there who was, yeah, yeah. yeah. Zeppo, uh, I need a couple extra bucks. He did it, but the, <laughs> the others, not so much. And so um, <laughs> Mary McCoy did not... Uh, 
did not come from New York, though. So, so a different actress, that actress Marjorie Fields, took over for the episodes that were recorded in California. But then the final four episodes were recorded back in New York. And mm-hmm. so then Mary McCoy was once again Miss Dimple for those episodes. Yeah, you don't want to say that those characters were uh, interchangeable, but, uh, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, mean, they it's were. just, yeah. Uh, so actually, the show had respectable ratings. And it wasn't on an, an, at a good time of the It was on at 7.30 at night, which was considered a not great time for radio at that time. That's not a time when people sat down to listen to, to the radio. Uh, 9 o'clock was considered the, well, prime time, the best time to have your show on. So that's what time Fire Chief was on, Edwin's show. And so it had respectable ratings and pretty high standard of writing and, and quality of the show. But Sandra Oil decided not to renew it. I think they were a little disappointed in the performance of it. And... and in compared to what, say, Edwin was getting for, for 48% market share for his show, which is pretty good mm-hmm. when you think about it. Uh, but um, his, like I say, his show was broadcast at 9, and, and Five Star Theater came on at 7.30, and so it wasn't really a fair contest. Con, con test. So there, there you go. So, um, now, let's talk about, let's talk about Duck Soup. Oh, sure. Because this had a kind of a twisting, twisting and very, very dramatic, uh, story to to its being made, and uh, Horse Feathers. When Horse Feathers came out, it was the number one grossing film for that year for Paramount. But to be fair, it was actually it made less than the Coconuts, because the nature of when the Marx Brothers were, were doing their films, each movie they made made less than the one before it, because they started just as the Great Depression was starting. And as they went, movies went on, they were getting deeper and deeper into the Great Depression where people had less and less money. Sure. And so people were going out less to movies and stuff like that. And all, everyone's, you know, we, we all know that a high tide raises all boats. Well, low tide lowers all boats as well. And so everyone was kind of going downhill in their, in their earnings. It was actually the same on Broadway for them too. Uh, I'll say she has had the longest Broadway run of any of their, of any of their Broadway shows. So it was, you know, so I'll say she is, then the coconuts, then animal crackers in terms of length. But once again, uh, you know, they had started on Broadway at a time when Broadway was starting to diminish in its popularity and in its importance because because of talkies, because of movies. This movies themselves had kind of taken place for a lot of people of going to a play. Going to a play was very expensive, but going to a movie was pretty cheap. So it kind of, uh, so that affected them. So, um, but still, Horse Feathers was, a, you know, the highest the grossing film, movie. yeah, that number one movie for that yeah. movie studio, not the number one movie in 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 the, the North America or the for that year or whatever, but number one for the studio. Oh, okay, all right. And so they were really eager to get another film out, even though in the contract with the Marx Brothers, it stipulated that they did one film a year and they wouldn't do more than that. But Paramount wanted to ignore this clause and just barrel right into a next, get the next film out right away because they were, as we talked about last time. They were in deep financial crisis because of the fact that the company director, Adolf Zucker, had spent all this money that he didn't have buying up theater chains. And when, when the depression hit, when people started to want to get money, you know, want to start selling the stocks and take the money back out of the company, that money wasn't there. He was just issuing stocks without anything to back them up. And so what went from a huge, uh, you know, plus on the ledger was became a giant minus and the company was in deep, difficulty so that was a problem but it so in late 1932 or in december in 1932 paramount announced that Man- Man- uh, Books would be supervising the next marx brother film which at that time was tentatively titled cracked ice originally mm-hmm. it was called firecrackers okay that was the original name 
and then Cracked Ice became the kind of working title. Uh, I prefer Firecrackers to Cracked Ice, but okay. Yeah, me too. I think it's a good, uh, much better title. The studio had attempted to reduce the advance on Horse Feathers for the Marx Brothers, and they had to kind of get their agent to step in and you know insist on them fulfilling yeah. the clause. So the Marx Brothers started. You know, the Marx Brothers knew that they were in financial difficulties, and so they were, you know, kind of shopping themselves around. The idea being that when their contract ran out, they would move on to another, to a greener pastures sure. that weren't suffering the, you know, weren't, weren't in the red. And so it was rumored at the time that the Marx Brothers would be signing with uh, an independent producer. His name was Sam Katz after the completion of their Paramount contract. And Katz was, you know, he had, he was friendly with, uh, Sam Harris, the Broadway producer, George Kaufman, Noel Coward. Uh, and so he had, you know, he had connections and he had, you know, material and stuff like that that he could use. Uh, his idea was he was planning to release the pictures through a distribution deal through United Artists. Uh, now, during Paramount's financial reorganization, the Marx Brothers contract with Paramount Publix Corporation, as it was called, and not just them, but other assets of the company, were transferred uh, from that company to a newly created company known as Paramount Productions. So, on February 13th, 1933, the Marx Brothers informed Paramount that they would not make any pictures for the new corporation because their contract did not give Paramount the right to assign the contract to another company. So basically, to the Marx Brothers, their contract was now void mm. because it did not, because they had signed with, Par- with, um, Paramount Publics Corporation and not with Paramount Pictures, so, or Paramount Productions, I should right. say. And so, they were basically to them, them to them they were free agents yeah. now so in march they formed their own company called marx brothers pictures corporation intending to make pictures on their own and distribute them through sam katz so the idea was sam katz was going to lend them four hundred thousand dollars as a budget for their film they would make the film i guess he would get a pay a percentage of it they would get a percentage of it and he would use his distribution deal, deal with united artists to distribute the film but they also negotiated a distribution deal with united artists Behind Sam Cat's back, I suppose. Uh-huh. When the cat's away. When the cat's away, the <laughs> Marxist play. Uh, which is kind of weird because, uh, and that, oh, sorry, and that was, uh, sorry, I said that about Sam Cat's. It was actually, um, United Artists who offered the $400,000 deal oh, okay, as, a, right. as a, as a way to get the Marx Brothers. Noted. Yeah, yeah. Very good. So now they were looking for a, a pro, a pro, something, you know, a pro- project to, to adapt. And when the, one they wanted to do was, uh, a George, Kaufman, uh, Maury Riskin play called Of Thee I Sing, which was a very, a very kind of straight ahead political satire. Um, now, Kaufman was completely against the Marx Brothers adapting this for themselves because he knew that they, in a, in a way, would destroy it because it wouldn't be what it was. You know, they would turn it into something much different than, than what, um, what the play was. Right. You know, it would become, instead of being this sort of straight ahead satire, it would become this very crazy, knockabout thing that might have absolutely nothing to do with the play who knows right uh he and, you know he saw what happened to the coconuts and animal crackers so he knew how things would tr- you know could morph over time into something slightly different or even very different uh now to add to the problems for the marx brothers on may 11th their dad frenchy uh who had already suffered a couple of heart attacks uh and had an ongoing kidney problems died mm-hmm. so uh the brothers took him, returned him to New York, and he was buried at Mount Carmel Cemetery with Minnie, beside Minnie. And it was while they're in New York that they learned that the Cats deal had fallen through, uh, because he just didn't have the 
proper financial backing. So basically, you know, he went with a lot of dreams and stuff like that, but he couldn't, he had no paper behind him. He was right. just, you know, he was, ho- I guess he was hoping to drum up, if he could get enough talent in front of himself, then the money would follow, he assumed, I guess. Yeah. But it was probably hard at that time to get money, uh, you know, out of, out of, uh, you know, it's hard to get blood from a stone. And they're just, you know, the way the stock market was and the way everything was at that time, it, there wasn't money floating around like crazy. So on May 16th, the Marx Brothers, on the day of Frenchie's funeral, uh, they signed an agreement with with uh, with Paramount to uh, they signed an agreement that they would film the project that was already in in production, which Paramount already sunk about a hundred grand into. So they were eager to keep this thing going, and basically the Marx Brothers, when they signed, they the the, the agreement they reached was that they reserved the right to leave if. They weren't happy with what was happening, basically. So if, so basically, that's what Paramount, uh, you know. So it was just kind of like a, we'll, you know, we'll agree to stay, but if there's any problems, we'll our suit will renew and we will we will sue you for for breach of contract. Yeah. Uh, and so they they agreed to a, a flat salary of three hundred thousand dollars for the movie, with no percentage, even though they had an existing deal which paid a lower amount with a percentage, because of their concerns about Paramount's uh, rather you know, teetering financial situation, they felt it was safer just to get a f- straight out flat fee rather than, than yeah. go through, go try and get a back end. Because t- honestly, they were already having trouble getting paid for the movies they'd done. They weren't getting, you know, the percentages that they, that they sh- should have got from those, from those films. So why would they, why would they opt for a lower salary and nothing in, as a percentage when they could get more as a big, as a big lump sum? Right. So that's what they did. Ah, because of their lawyers, Flypaper, Beagle, and uh, Shyster. <laughs> Arrange that for them. <laughs> there you go. That's who did it. Yep. That's who did it. Now, like I was saying, Duxube had been in, <laughs> Duxube had been in production. I could say before I was interrupted by you. By okay. myself. <laughs> yes. Before I interrupted myself, uh, Duxube had been in production for, for some time, so in, uh, under various titles. So the titles that it had at various times were uh, firecrackers. Yep. Cracked ice. Yep. Grasshoppers. Okay. And for a time, ooh la la. <laughs> okay. Because was it going to take a place in France? Well, the the uh, director who was attached to it, it was Ernst Lubitsch, the who was uh you know do you know Ernst? Ernst I've heard Lubitsch? the name. He directed uh a very he directed kind of farces like almost bedroom farces. All right. Uh, he was European. And he <laughs> Almost bedroom farces. So living room farces. Well, I don't want yeah, living room farces. <laughs> very, you're, close, you're the very close to the bedroom. Well, Let's you not, know, uh, you know, be risque. This is, yeah, we don't want to get carried away. <laughs> uh, he was, he, he did the movie To Be and Not To Be. All right. With Jack Benny. The original, yeah. Yeah. And he did the film The, the Little Shopper on the Corner with Jimmy Stewart and uh, Margaret Sullivan, I think. Right. Again, was both remade into different movies. Okay, yeah. yeah. But the originals are the best. Let's face it. Sure. Uh, All right. And, um... Which are very good films, and you can kind of see his his thing was even though he was making films in Hollywood, his films are situated in in Eastern Europe. Okay, and there you know there's sort of misunderstandings and and you know, farcical elements yes. to them. Uh, and that was sort of his thing, and so Ooh La La, I guess, is a sort of a reference to the fact that this film's going to be very European and oh so classy because it's got Lubitsch attached to it. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. You start it classy and then go nuts. So once he became involved, this was the first time with the project that. The idea of like a fictional kingdom became part of the idea of the movie. So, so the idea of having, which was a very popular kind of movie, uh, idea at the time to have a, to base your films in these sort of imaginary places. There's a film Million Dollar Legs. I don't know if you know that movie with W.C. Fields. He nope. plays, 
pretty funny, but it's very zany. It was also directed by Norman Zed McLeod, who directed uh, Monkey Business and, and, and Horse Feathers. And then there's uh, Never Give a Sucker an Even Break, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, the W.C. Fields film where he, he, uh, oh, you know, actually, I guess he goes to the country in the film within a film as he tells the story to Franklin Pangborn's character. But that's again an imaginary place that uh, he travels to or falls out of a plane into, I guess I should say. Such a good movie. Um, so the first draft of uh, Calmer and Ruby's script with contributions from this uh, writer named Grover Jones, and nobody knows what his exact role in writing of the early drafts was, uh, but he was involved. He did write a film for Lubitsch called Trouble in Paradise. And so maybe when Lubitsch was attached to it, he became involved in the writing of it. Maybe it was felt that he would bring something Lubitschian to the to the screenplay that, that uh, Kalmar and Ruby couldn't provide. So they would be giving the zany Marx Brother element, and he would be bringing in sort of sure. Lubitsch. That's my assumption. I have no idea All right. what, what his exact con- contribution was. So their first their first script was sort of vaguely related to Duck Soup as we know it, but the, but the second draft, which was also done with Jones, has recognizable elements from the film. So this is the first appearance of Fredonia, Mrs. Teasdale, Ambassador Trentino, who for some reason was called Ambassador Frankenstein in the first film. Okay. All appear in this draft with Grocho playing a character called Rufus T. Firestone, uh, who's an ammunition dealer, and his son Bob Firestone, played by Zeppo. And Chico, also, but Chico had a similar role. He plays the role of a peanut vendor who becomes Secretary of War in a similar sort of sort of way. We'll go back a little bit to the script, but I'm just going to say that the final draft was finished on July 11th. At this time, after announcement in February, the movie was, was as I said before, was at this time called Grasshoppers. The script was a continuation of Calvar and Ruby's efforts, but with added dialogue and bits from Sheikman and Perrin, including uh, some interpolations of routines from Flywheel. Shyster and Flywheel. So they took oh, stuff okay. from that show and they... All right. So for instance... Give it to take it. Yeah. So for instance, uh, the... Um, well, a lot of the trial jokes, you can imagine, came out of a show with a, law- with a mm-hmm. lawyer and stuff like that. So a lot of the trial, the irrelevant, you know, and the eliminate and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Another one was uh, Shadow Day, the, the yep. tra- trailing sequence or the track that the uh, shadow, you know, talking about shadowing a guy on Shadow Day. That, that was another one from, the, from that. Um, now, I'm not sure if this was in the final screenplay or at some point during the various versions. The original ending of the film at this point was uh, there was a plot to blow up Trentino. But Chico forgets where he hid the bomb. It explodes and all four Marx brothers are killed and ascend to heaven with wings and Harpo playing a harp. And as they're going up, they're joined by a winged Trentino who, as they're talking, once again describes, calls Groucho an upstart. And Groucho, sl- you know, hits him with his glove. And then, then the whole the fight sequence starts again. It's in- oh, that's not the ending it should be. And this is me going, <laughs> come on, man. Uh, all right. The running gag through the whole thing is um, is Harpo uh, cutting things. He just takes the scissors, cuts oh. the wings off, and falls. He is, ch- he is uh, there, yeah, he also is, uh, like, cutting away at Chantina's wings. Oh, good, good. All right, then yeah. that's fine, then. Then we're okay. But that was, of course, thrown out at some point. Now, the director of this movie, we have to talk about Leo McCary. Because Leo McCary, without a doubt, was the most talented director the Marx Brothers ever worked with. And they wanted to work with him. Okay. He had done uh, a movie called Kid from The Kid from Spain that had a uh, screenplay from uh, Kalmar and Ruby. The Marx Brothers really thought this film was quite good. It's an Eddie Cantor vehicle. I don't know if I said have, that. Have you seen it? Yeah. And what's your it's, opinion? It's pretty good. All right. Yeah, it's no Marx Brothers film, but it's pretty good. Um, but I like it. I like Eddie Cantor a lot as a, as a as a comedian. So just because I saw a film when I was like in grade ten or something on on TV late one night, and I just 
I thought it was the cat's pajamas. So I've always had a soft spot for him. Um, that actually sounds like the title of a film from that period. Hmm. Almost the cat's paw. The, sure. Uh, Harold Lloyd film. But um, the, the his films to me, like when you come when you come back to them, like from our time, they're a little slow. And maybe if you watch them with like a lot of people laughing, they wouldn't feel quite as draggy. Okay. But it's hard to know. Like, um, but yeah. So, but here's the thing: McCary didn't want to work with the Marx Brothers. He had no interest in working with the Marx Brothers. But Paramount really wanted him to work with the Marx Brothers, and the Marx Brothers wanted him to work, work with the Marx Brothers. So he kind of found himself in a bit of a bind. Now, let's talk a, bit, a little about McCary. McCary uh, started with um, Hal Roach Studios. Okay. Started working there in 1927, and he was basically what was called a supervising director at that time. And a supervising director might direct the film, but he was also the producer. He might be the writer. He would do editing. So it was a various roles that was basically they were involved in the complete completion of the film. So he did that for a while, and then he became more of like a managing director, and he was sort of oversaw all the productions on the, on the lot. But he was the person who was responsible for bringing Laurel and Hardy together as a team. So he also uh, directed quite a few um, Charlie Chase films when he was working there. And so he had an extensive background in silent silent films and like a, and really understood the language of silent films. And I think he was a little sad, you know, coming out of the silent film era into the talking era, how much talking there was in films and how little there was of physical humor and stuff in films because that kind of all fell away because it was just too hard to film, especially in the early days sure. of a film is because the mics were so hot that any amount of cl- you know clunking and banging on the stage would just sound like you know someone throwing a uh, truckload of dishes down a steps of a you know like a stairwell. It would just be so it just wouldn't work. So uh, he later directed, in my opinion, one of the best screwball comedies, "The Awful Truth" with Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. Okay, yeah. And reportedly, many of Grant's mannerisms that he developed while working on this film and kind of carried on in his career as an actor were. He lifted from McCary. Ah. So, because uh, McCary was sort of, would sort of tell you how he wanted you to do the, he'd sort of act out what he wanted you to do. Yeah. And so then you would. Give a line reading. Yeah. And then you would repeat it. And, and so a lot of, and also Stan Laurel apparently also borrowed a lot of mannerisms. Oh, interesting. From McCary as That's well. That's not something actors usually like, but I guess they, uh, it was useful. Take what you can. <laughs> yeah. Steal yeah. what you will. One of my favorite stories about um, Leo McCary, and I'm probably going to screw up the story a little bit just because it's one of the things you like, but you can't quite remember all the details. But so, Sam Goldwyn was looking for a vehicle, a film vehicle for two of his stars, Merle Oberon, the actress, and Gary Cooper. And he was looking for a vehicle for them. And McCary heard about this. So one day he just kind of plans it, sort of shows up. This story is from Garson Kanan, the director. He directed uh, uh, Adam's Rib, the, the Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn film, for instance. And um, so Kanan was there when this happened. And so McCary kind of comes in and he says, you know, I had the craziest idea the other day he proceeds to basically stretch out on goldwyn's couch much to goldwyn's consternation <laughs> as he kind of lays on his couch reclines there and he goes i had this crazy idea so here's the picture this is what i'm thinking so i'm picturing this lady and she's british this british lady i don't know who's gonna play her i'm kind of thinking i don't know someone maybe like merle oberon you know, you can you can we can decide. You know, like we can think about that. And he kind of described. You know, she she goes to this place and she meets up with this cowboy. Now she's this prim and proper lady, and she meets up with this dusty, gruff, quiet guy, this lanky, slim cowboy. I'm kind of thinking maybe kind of a Gary Cooper type for this role. Now Goldman's, of course, Goldman's sitting up. He's like, hey, this is this is exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> and McCary, you know, this kind of laser and spins this yarn and tells a story. And succeeds in selling the the outline for fifty thousand dollars to Goldwyn. So then 
Goldemar wants him to write the script. Well, he can't remember what he said in this meeting. He has no idea. So he just threw something really quickly together. He gave it all to Garson Kanan and said, here, you write it. You write it. And then Goldemar wanted to direct it. And McCray said, I'm not directing that garbage. <laughs> he used a different word, but I can't say it on the show. Nice. I got better things to do. Spe- Mc- speaking just really quickly sure. of words you can't say, and we won't say words because we're uh, a G-rated podcast here. Yeah. Is duck soup? Uh, is there? Is that a replacement? Uh, like uh, Jimmy Crickets is no. uh, is a sort for Jesus Christ? Because it feels like if you said a a, a, f- a famous curse to someone, that would be a mm. ba ba. Hey, what'd you say? Oh, duck soup. Yeah. All right. Well, that's fine then. Like it feels. It feels like. It's it, got the same rhythm mm, to that, it's not. And, it, and it's such a weird, like horse feathers makes sense because yeah. horse don't have feathers mm. unless you're a Pegasus, so that's nonsense, and it makes sense. But horse feathers was a replacement word for for something that horses leave laying around. Fair enough. In the comic strip. Okay, Underst- yeah. understood. Okay. Uh, but it's a nonsense word. It makes sense. Yeah. You know, coconuts. These guys are nuts. Animal crackers. These guys are crackers. Sure. This all just makes sense. But then, like duck soup. Duck soup was, a, was an idiom that meant it's easy. Yeah. It's duck soup. It's easy. Yeah. I get, yeah. I, I get it. And it, yeah. it just uh, always, always seemed a little weird to me. But okay. <laughs> it is continue. odd. But, you know, those, it's one of those idioms that have left the language. So even though we still say Bob's your uncle, and if you can make any sense of that for me. Well, Bob is my uncle. So I do have an uncle named Bob. So the way, the way that McCary liked to work on a film was basically at his own pace. Sure. So he would often, like, stop production to stop stop shooting and if he got reached a point in the script or in the what he was where he was taking the actors and he liked to improvise in films as well so he'd often throw out the script and just sort of let the actors kind of take 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 it where they want to go and if he reached a point where it wasn't sure where to happen next he would just sort of he might play the piano or he might start telling stories to the crew mm-hmm. and at some point an idea might occur to him and he'd be like that's it oh this was easy it was duck soup why didn't i think of this earlier uh and then then he'd be excited and he might, he might want to shoot through lunch he might want to shoot into the evening and so that's how he liked to work so the idea of having to wrangle a bunch of marx brothers onto a set and the fact that they insisted on ending the day at six o'clock sharp they did not want to film into the evening they did yeah. not uh, like the idea of overtime they wanted to go home to their families or to the racetrack in chico's case they didn't want to you know to them it was a job they didn't have that passion of, of mccary for you know that creative moment you know that he had and I think because for them, the creative moment was the writing of it, not the filming of it. The filming of it was just a boring drag that you had to get through in order to get to that completed thing that you really enjoyed. It appeared to, it appeared as if the Marx Brothers weren't going to be around for long at Paramount, though. And his contract was about to run out. And he really was having a lot of fun playing darts with, with, with Mankiewicz in the, in the offices and doing a lot of silly games and stuff like that and, and having like running contests and and throwing contests and stuff like that with, with the other writers and stuff. And so he's kind of like, well, worse comes to worse. If the Marx Brothers decide they're going to do the movie, I can just let my contract run out and leave and not direct the film. So that was kind of his plan. But things got so bitter between the Marxes and Paramount that McCary thought, well, they're never coming back. And so when his contract came up for renewal, he renewed his contract. And then just at that moment, the Marx Brothers reached their reached the, uh, their, uh, you know, they concluded all the problems yeah. with Paramount and signed to do the picture. And so McCary was now stuck <laughs> to do the movie. So it was actually McCary who brought in Sheikman and Perrin uh, in to work on, to do the rewrites on what Kalmar and Ruby had, had done. 
So like I say, they brought the gags from, from Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel. They threw out a scripted romance between Raquel Torres, Vera McCall in the movie, and uh, Zeppo, which included a Calmer and Ruby song, love song called Keep on Doing What You're Doing. They're good at recycling, so they threw it into a Wheeler and Woolsey movie <laughs> that they worked on later uh, called Hips Hips Array they worked on in the ne- next year. They also removed from the script this uh, running gag where whenever Groucho uh, went in and out of, when he exited or entered a room, he would pull a rabbit out of his hat, which huh. is a weird gag. Yeah, I'm, not sure how it, yeah. I'm not too sure how it worked, but I think they liked those sort of non-sequitur gags. Uh, uh, the and Ruby. only thing I could think that would make that work is if for some reason he set up a thing at the beginning where he was trying to impress someone and tried to pull a rabbit out of his hat and didn't have anything. Mm. And then no, no, the, you don't have to make it ex- explicable. But no, that, you do. You do. No, but, no, you don't. Okay, but... Why would you want to do that? Because there's... Some for the movie. Yeah, because here's how the joke works then. You, he, he can't pull a rabbit out of his hat and then for the rest of the uh, rest of the uh, film, every time, you know, he takes off his hat, there's another rabbit and he's just driving him more and more crazy till it's like just a room full of rabbits like near the end. You could do it and you build it up that way. You set, you have I, a little setup. I guess. You could do it that, that way or you could make it more cartoony and just have them pull rabbits out of his hat for no reason. Cartoons have reasons. Not always. Yeah. No, I would say Looney Tunes cartoons don't always have reasons for what I happens would in contest them. that on our Looney Tunes podcast, <laughs> which we may do in the future. So in the movie, there's a doghouse tattoo joke. Uh, it's pretty good. But the original joke was uh, Grocho slaps uh, Harpo in the back and he has an outhouse tattoo and the door swings open and an arm reaches and grabs and closes the door ah okay. that was the original gag sure. but it was taken out of the script probably for reasons of propriety because even if even though it was pre-code yeah you can't do a you water had, closet joke they do they do a bathroom joke in the movie but mm-hmm. it's kind of a subtle one so kind of thing that kicks jack parr off the air later on <laughs> yeah. so like i said the final the final script was was handed in on july 11th to the studio but mccary then held a bunch of revision meetings at his beach house in Malibu. He brought Marx Brothers there and the writers and stuff like that. And basically they they threw out about half the script and did a lot of improvisation and stuff there and rewrote a lot of stuff. And and, and so that was when uh, like the Lemonade Stand and the Edgar Kennedy character were introduced at this point. Um, the mirror sequence was brought in, mm-hmm. throwing out a different uh, sequence that was in the that was in the film. It wasn't an original suggestion, the mirror the mirror uh, it was already it already was an old gag. It was done in vaudeville by a, a group called the Schwartz Brothers. It had appeared in a version of it had appeared in Chaplains of Floorwalker. Not exactly the same. Right now, the Schwartz Brothers uh, did they resemble each other? They don't have they. Yeah, well, I suppose they could make up be made up to resemble each other. Yeah, that's what I was wondering because that yeah. was one of the nice things about this was they have a passing resemblance to each mm-hmm. other being brothers. So yeah. when you do make both of them up. As Groucho, yeah, that's a passing Groucho. I could see how you would think that was like sure. Chico as Groucho. Mm-hmm. Looks like Groucho. Yeah, I mean, yeah. during during their years and years on vaudeville, they would often switch parts. Sure, sure. It wor- yeah, it works because they look so similar. They could, you know, the application of grease paint and you know eyebrows, mustache. Mm-hmm. Anyone could be Groucho. I've and- seen I've seen many a tribute to the the mirror uh, bit mm-hmm. in, the, in the future. Occasionally, well, only once involving Harper himself with uh, Lucille Ball. There, so in the Floorwalker, it's a bit different because in that film, and I don't know why people say it's like the mirror, like the mirror sequence. Because in that film, I don't know if you know the Floorwalker, but no, I don't. In the mo- in the movie, Chaplin basically runs into a double of himself, who's a slightly better dressed version of himself, and they have a kind of a moment of mirroring each other's mo- movements because they're so shocked by their resemblance to each other. 
And then they switch clothes, and the one person takes <laughs> over. It becomes Charlie Chaplin, and then Charlie Chaplin becomes this guy. They prince the popper. Okay. And then there was another film called uh, with an actor called Max Linder called Seven Years Bad Luck in 1921. In that film, he is the valet to this, um, you know, to a, his master, to this guy. And they break this. Uh, the mirror gets broken in his bathroom, and they don't want him. They don't want him to know that it's broken. So Max Linder pretends to be the master, and he's. You know, so he's mirroring all the, the motions of the master, including the master, uh, shaving, and he's putting shaving cream on his face, and Linder doesn't have any shaving cream, so he's just trying to make do with water, and the master's getting confused why, why there's no shaving cream in the mirror, and he gets, he gets distracted for a second, and then Linder reaches through and dips his brush into <laughs> his, the master's yeah. mug, and then he puts the shaving cream on. And then, there's, uh, something else happens, and then the ma- the master gets called away, and then he comes back in. And at this point, he's convinced that there's a it's a fake in the mirror. But in the meantime, Linder and this other guy have the the replacement mirror has arrived, and they install it. And then the master comes in, and he throws his shoe at the mirror, and then he breaks the mirror again. Ah. So there you go. Um, so I think it's a bit different than 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 that. Now the the house breaking mirror sequence that was in the that's in the movie replaced. An elaborately scrapped, scripted sequence that was took place in an op in an opera theater in the film, uh, which involved um, Groucho or not Groucho Harpo uh, shooting bow and arrow and uh, shooting apples on a boy's head in the, it, instead of William Tell. I guess William Tell's supposed yep. to be doing it on stage, and and Har- and Harpo does it from some other place and shoots him off a boy's head. I guess before the William Tell can do it. I guess that's a good gag. It's hard to imagine it. You know, you'd have to see it, I guess, to see how it worked. Then there's like a kind of a, t- a dance, a tango scramble for the plans because it's, it's in someone's, oh, uh, Vera Markel hides it in her, in her bodice and her, and so then I guess Groucho's trying to dip her to make them fall ah, out. Okay. And, and it's all, it's all very, uh, it's all very, um, elaborate. And there was a good exchange between Margaret Dumont and Ciccolini, which is if his excellency doesn't get here soon, he'll miss the whole performance. To which Chico says, he's not missing anything. He's backstage with the girls. Backstage with the girls? What could he be doing there? Well, they could be playing solitaire, but I don't think so. It's <laughs> a good, good gag. But it was taken out. McCary also changed the name of the movie to Duck Soup, which had previously been the title of a Laurel and Hardy short from 1927. And in about three or four years later, it would become uh, the name of an Edgar Kennedy short ah. as well. So popular... A popular idiom to have disappeared so so completely from our language to be in three different films. Uh, McCary also worked closely with Harpo, imp- improving and improvising new material, like new routines, which is pretty common with with Harpo. You know, writers would write stuff in this in the screenplay, but it's hard to write for someone whose character is so much themselves that you know basically Harpo is the funny thing that he does. Mm-hmm. He is funny. Like Chico could take a blowtorch out of his pocket to light a cigar. But it's nowhere near as funny as as Harpo doing it because Harpo, he's Harpo. Yeah, and it just he's just na- na- that's the naturally funny beginning to that thing. And no matter what he does, but it was um it was uh McCary's idea to give Harpo scissors and basically just instructed him to cut whatever he wanted to during the filming because I think with his roots in, in silent film comedy he was more sympathetic to to Harpo to Harpo's comedy than he was say to Groucho's comedy, sure. and Groucho was much less sympathetic to McCary's comedy than Harpo was. Groucho thought what McCary liked was old hat. Like, Groucho just dismissed silent film humor as, as old hat just so much yesterday's news. And you know, uh, what's the Can one I just g- say another film that oh McCary my, directed? Oh my gosh, you absolutely can. Going My Way with Bing Crosby. Very nice. And The Bells of St. Mary's. And here's the, the thing. Uh, in Duck Soup, 
not the films, but in actual duck soup, mm-hmm. the duck soup from the expression duck soup, what's the one thing you never have in duck soup? What's the one ingredient you never have? Ducks? That's correct. Mm. Duck soup is anything but ducks. Okay. You put in this, that, and the other thing, and you get duck soup. It's okay. as easy as duck soup because there's no ducks involved. I see. Whatever you put in, that is duck soup. <laughs> yeah. That's good. I liked uh, Grotto's explanation for it, which, which was, was, oh, his is very complicated. You put in you know, two turkeys and three this and four that, and once after you've eaten it, you'll duck soup the rest of your life. Yep. That's right. There's no ducks in duck soup. All right. So let's go to the film now. Weren't you worried about those ducks off the top? Not really. Oh, I was. <laughs> Why? That was a disturbing start to the movie. It's the <laughs> these ducks who are in a, 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 a pot, yeah. and there's really big flames all the way around mm. them. And I was like, oh, I wonder if those, it, was, it was like a it was a special effect or something or some such. It's like, nope, it's actual ducks in a pot with uh, flames underneath <laughs> and uh, swimming around. <laughs> and uh, yeah. No, it just started off on the wrong uh, web foot for me. It was like, oh, no, don't, uh, why? Why do these ducks have to be in this pot? This isn't a good gag, and it's just disturbing. But it's the start, and there you go. I did like seeing the cartoon versions of the Marx Brothers as ducks. That I like. It's interesting the film opens with, with it says the NRA. Yeah, what's up with that? Uh, it was uh, like something like the New Reform Administration. Something. It was a Roosevelt uh, initiative to try and to try and solve the Great Depression. It didn't last very long. So it, it wasn't related to the National Rifle Association? No, they, I don't think they existed then. Okay, because I know a cartoon... Uh, oh, what am I thinking about? I think it's like a Betty Boop cartoon, something along those lines. But okay. there's a hillbilly guy. And at one point, he uh, he rips his shirt open. Yeah. And there's a big tattoo on his chest. And it says, NRA. Well, that's probably a reference to the to the the new one of the New Deal programs that... Roosevelt yeah, had, had. that makes a lot more sense than like... Because yeah. Nash- I was looking at it going like... Did they have to say we're pro guns? You were singing about guns, and there's crazy gun violence in this. And no, that makes sense. Well, yeah, yeah. whatever, whatever. That's why. Yep, that was what it was. The blue eagle. Like you can tell it's blue, but that was the symbol of of the of the new reform. So I can't exactly not that for. one. That's there we go. And yeah, then duck soup. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you mean the the Laurel and Hardy movie? No, not that one. <laughs> that one oh, you mean the one that came? No, not that one. I don't even know if the NRA existed at that time as 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 much of a as much of a force. I, as far as I know, they became like a real political power as a reaction to uh, Black Panthers openly parading with rifles in the late sixties. And the NRA became a lobby began lobbying for gun ownership and and. Well, this is where we're time. going to turn this over to our listeners. Uh, yeah, you, our, guys, you guys tell us. Yeah, uh, let us know underneath uh, our episode. If you go to our website, sneakydragon.com, you'll go and you'll see our episodes of uh, Full Marks there. And we always love to hear from you. And if you've got trivia uh, or uh, historical uh, things that we yeah. have missed out on, uh, please fill us in. Or sure. if there was any mistakes Dave made, correct him. Yes, please do. Right. Let's just put our cards face up on the table, mm-hmm. in which case you'll see there's a lot of Ace of Spades in our deck but we're canadian and a couple of jokes. we don't know and a couple of jokes. <laughs> we're canadian we don't know very much about, about those sort of things nope we don't know nra from uh english is our second form. language folks it is it is so the film opens right once we get past uh the nra and uh little cartoon versions of uh terif- the... some ducks who's uh who ruined the film for you <laughs> no need for that the film <laughs> The sensitive people. It should have been yeah, a warning for yeah. sensitive people. No, just don't be a jerk. Don't. Yeah. Treat, um, treat animals nice. Okay, go ahead. The film opens with Margaret Dumont as Mrs. Teasdale in discussion with various government officials of Fredonia. We learn that she has already lent half of her late husband's vast fortune to prop up an ailing government, and they want an additional $20 million. That's all. Sure. 
drop in the bucket. Mrs. Teasdale will only lend this money if the current president will step aside so that Rufus T. Firefly can be appointed. By the way, Firefly is a much better name than Firestone. Yeah, or or what is it? Flypaper? Also better. Was there a flypaper? I don't think I... Well, what was fly... fly uh, flywheel. What? Flywheel. Better yeah. than flywheel as yeah, well. Yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, on the night of Firefly's inauguration, we meet Ambassador Trentino from the rival country of Sylvania. Trentino was played by an actor, a long-standing actor, Louis Calhoun, uh, whose real name was Carl Vogt. Uh, he was a longtime stage actor who also appeared in films starting in 1921. And what's interesting is that in the same year as Duck Soup, he was in a Wheeler and Woolsey film called Diplomaniacs that also takes place in, I wouldn't say in an imaginary country, but it takes, it's a film that ha- has an imaginary political story to it where they, they are, they have a store on an Indian reservation or a Native American reservation and they go to the UN or they go to the, oh, no, the League of Nations, sorry, because there's no UN at this time. Right. They go to the League of Nations in order to po- make some sort of protest or something like that. That's what the film's about. And that film was written by Herman Mankiewicz, who was the supervising producer of the Marx Brothers films for Paramount. His brother Joseph wrote the uh, film. So there you go. Well, this is, a, and this one's a classic setup. It's, uh, we've got a country. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, and uh, here, here comes a big setup for Groucho. Yeah. Big setup. This person, this person's going to put everything right. Here we go. Margaret Dumont. Nice to see her back again. She's been missed. Yes. I think she even, is the straight person. Even Groucho Marx had to admit that it was a mistake to, to, to drop her from the films. Yep. I think. And then they didn't, they did not make that mistake again. Uh, can I just say one more thing about Louis Calhoun, which I thought was interesting was he was married four times, but due to the fact that he was a chronic alcoholic, all his marriages fell apart. And even though he went for treatment occasionally, it, he just it never took. And he would not join AA because he was an atheist. So he just never would, he would refuse to join like a 12 step program. They probably might have been able to help him, but just because of his opinion, his, yeah. you know, his beliefs, he just couldn't do it. It's kind of a sad life in a way. Yeah. No, I, under, I understand that. That makes sense. I'm sorry, sorry that uh, things worked out that way for him though. And back then, who knows what AA stood for? Everything stood for something different. All, uh, all acronyms were, were, were different back then. <laughs> Mrs. Uh, Teasdale introduces Trentino to, to the, to a dancer. Named Vera Markel, who's played by Raquel Torres. Uh, Torres, whose original name was Paula Marie Osterman, but she was from, she was Mexican. Yeah. Her dad was a German immigrant who married a, a Mexican woman. And she had quite the revealing outfit. That was an outfit, I would say an outfit and a half, but it was more like half an outfit. I would say that every outfit she wore in that movie was revealing. That looked, that looked like, oh, you could wear this back then. Mm-hmm. All right, fair enough. Remember, this movie's pre-code. It's it was definitely, the, the, the yeah. dress might as well have said pre-code on the back. <laughs> And uh, please wash with delicates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she won the contest over. Well, there was still that that outfit worn by by. Um, oh yes, by Thelma Todd. Yes, and horse feathers. That that, uh, that was like, what's the what now yeah, with this? That that was brought. Yeah, new. we got a couple of racy scenes in this one. Um, <laughs> yeah, she 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 seemed like she was going to be an interesting character, and then kind of vanished. Just, yeah, well, just, because you know, it's a usual fight between plot. And Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. Who will win? Do we really want to see a lot of behind-the-scenes machinations between Trentino and Tor and, and, and yet, we haven't, we haven't done a, a, a basic overview. Like, we're kind of going scene by scene mm-hmm. here. But just as a basic overview, how do you feel about this movie in general? What's your general feeling of uh, Duck Soup? Like, how do I feel about it? Like, as a, as a movie? As it, yeah, does it work oh, for you? Oh, I love it. Okay, I thought this was a stinker. Really? Yeah, this one was the first one that I just went, this was a miss. There were some really good scenes in it, but it wow. felt like people doing a Marx Brothers impression, and huh. it felt hollow, it felt mean, 
and oh. it felt sloppy, like really sloppy. Even scenes that I thought were uh, interesting, like the mirror scene, I thought were so sloppily done that you uh, you sent it uh, goodbye. There's there's some really funny scenes. Like you can break it down and wow. go like this is good, but as a whole, I thought the lack of a plot in this, which normally I'm like, well, yeah, Marx Brothers plot, who cares? Yeah, yeah. This could have used some kind of plot because what? Yeah. Just nothing. There was nothing. There was nothing to it. It was just chaos built on chaos built on chaos. And I think someone like her, you know, with you know, trying to seduce Groucho and him not responding, mm-hmm. you could have got something out of it. And now that you were telling me that Zeppo had a plot with her, well, yeah, that's uh, that also is what you need. You need a little Zeppo sometimes. Mm-hmm. You need a little bread in your sandwich. Let's uh, <laughs> sandwich this with something instead of all just chaos. Yeah. But yeah, yeah this one was uh, on the whole mm, no. But okay, back to you. This is probably my second favorite Marx Brothers film. Mm. Duck Soup. I, I love this movie. I'm glad that you do. I'm glad <laughs> the people that like it like it. I know Roger Ebert, this was his favorite Marx Brothers movie and one of his favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. I'm sad that you didn't enjoy it. Yeah. I did not. All right. Uh, let's go scene by scene. So we quickly learn that Markel is a, is a Sylvanian spy. Uh, and she reminds Trentino that his plans to marry Mrs. Teasdale to take control of Fredonia will be spoiled by her attraction to Firefly. I don't think it'll be so easy, he says. They are introduced to Bob Rowland, a uh, demoted Zeppo. He's lost his his, his uh, position that you like so much as uh, as uh, love interest in the film. But he's back he, being Groucho's he's, son again. He's retru- Wait, no, no, he's, he's, no, he's not his no, son. He's secretary. That's secretary, right. secretary, that's right. He's gone back to secretary. He's gone back to secretary. Yeah, yeah sorry about that. Yeah. Which is uh, too bad for him. Uh, who announces by singing the imminent arrival of His Excellency, Rufus T. Firefly. Which he has uh, done before. Yes. Which is like, here comes a very noble person. Or, you know, big setup, big setup, big setup, which is always good. Well, it's, what's interesting, what's interesting about Kamran and Ruby's contributions to these films, and I can see why they contributed and why Groucho loved Harry Ruby so much, why they're such great friends. I think that because Groucho was a huge fan of Gilbert and Sullivan, and you can really see a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan in these sort oh, of scenes. Absolutely. Where sung introductions and, you know, big numbers and things to, uh, I don't think you want the whole movie to be that, but I think he liked elements of it to be in the yeah. films. So it's of still, a still a little of, strange to me when you start a movie as a musical mm-hmm. and then just go, and eh, we're done with the music now and then we're just going to go, go along. Well, this, mu- this movie is pretty, mu- uh, music heavy, I would say. They then later to, on, yeah, with the going to war, it it, it kicks back in again, yeah, but it's a yeah. long period of time before. It's always, you know, are you a musical or you're not a musical? Well, we're a musical at the beginning, a little bit at the end, but yeah, it's it's fine, it's fine. Uh, so as you said, there is an elaborate musical number, right, with a chorus, dancers scattering pedals, and a military yep. beautiful honor guard in full dress, very well uniform, done, welcoming yep. the incoming president, and of course. He's going to be on time when the clock strikes 10 and they begin to sing Hail, Hail, Fredonia, Land, uh, the Free, and then he doesn't show up. So they do it again. No Groucho. One more time. Then we cut to Firefly or Groucho lying in bed. Right. He's awakened by an alarm and then we get with the camera undercranked, uh, speed it up slightly. Yeah. Uh, he quickly changes out of his PJs, slides down a fireman's pole and arrives in time to join his own honor guard. Where he lines up, which is a part I love in that movie, where he's standing with a cigar out, uh, stretched out in front of him, as if it was a sword. Yep. Basically saying, what's up, Doc? To the guy <laughs> next to him. Mrs. Teasdale spots Firefly and welcomes him with open arms. Upon learning that uh, Mrs. Teasdale is both rich and widowed, Firefly promptly proposes marriage. Uh, then, of course, insults her. Yep. His bizarre lovemaking is interrupted by Trentino. Firefly asks for a loan of $20 million. 
Trentino informs him that he will have to consult with his Minister of Finance. So Firefly is willing to settle for a $12 loan until payday. Uh, which was a good line there. And if I don't pay you back, you can keep the note. Yep. It's a good one. Uh, he then dances with Vera Markel before dictating a letter to his dentist. Shows some different dances that he knows. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When Mrs. Teasdale asks him his plans for the kingdom, he sings, Just Wait Till I Get Through With It. So another number, pretty elaborate. Yeah, number. that's right. Top heavy with songs. Yeah. Uh, and one of the, it was interesting, one of the featured performers in the, um, in the scene where the, where the, older lady is uh, looking at the young man and sort of spurning her husband when he's talking about, you know, she has a woman can, a wife can choose yeah. who she loves. That guy is a, is an actor named Dennis O'Keefe who went on to a, a fair, you know, did a fair number of films as a kind of a B, B, B movie actor. Sure. At that time he was, he was called, his name was Bud Flanagan, but when he signed MGM, they changed his name to Dennis O'Keefe. Good call. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, husband is uh, taken outside and pop goes the weasel. Yes. That's right. Like, yeah. Yeah. So then at the end of that song, after, um, Grouch has basically said that he's going to turn the country into a, into some sort of strange Puritan dictatorship. Yeah, or he's going to put people against the wall and shoot them. Yeah. yeah he uh, calls for his car, and we find now we meet Pinky, which at the beginning of this the movie or beginning of this the writing for the film was going to be called Brownie, but that was changed back to Pinky, which was his name in, in Horse Feathers. Right. I see him waiting outside in his motorbike with a sidecar. Groucho Carl gets into the sidecar. Pinky drives off and leaves Firefly below. Very nice. That's a good little joke yep. there. Uh, we so we cut to. Uh, Sylvania, which I don't know why we do that. We don't cut to, we must not be cutting to Sylvania, but it does say Sylvania, right? Is I he back in Sylvania? That's strange. I'm not sure. I'm going to say we're back in Sylvania. I'm pretty sure that's what it is because. All right. Once again, correct us if, uh, we need yeah, to if I mixed up, I'm, I might Fair just enough. be, apparently Sylvania is the a city, Andalusia of the Sp- Spanish city. That's what mm-hmm. they used as the, the stand in for, for Sylvania. So we get to, uh, see Trentino talking to a strangely desperate individual. Who is supposed to be fomenting revolution in uh, in in Fredonia, but because of Firefly's popularity, because he's popping weasels and uh, taking away yeah. people's fun. Yeah, um, people seem to really like like that. To, people seem to like, okay. it, like it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, now this guy, who's the the desperate revolutionary, he, he's played by the, an actor named Leonid uh, Kinski. Mm. Who, by the way, I think I think mm. probably if you went to Fredonia there, yeah. it would just be a wild time. That's what he says. Yeah, yeah. But it's gonna be a, it's a sure. good time. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. It is. yeah. Yeah, he likes. Uh, there's no dirty jokes. There's lots of dirty jokes. Everything's dirty <laughs> jokes. Yeah, everything's the opposite of what he says. Probably. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Kinski played Sasha in Casablanca. That's probably what he's best known for. Ah, good. Okay. There and you interestingly, go. he was in the pilot episode of Hogan's Heroes as one of the POWs. But once the show was picked up for to you know by the network, he decided he didn't want to be in the show because he didn't like the idea of a show that made fun of Nazis in a or had fun with that period of, sure. of history. Didn't think that was a. Didn't think it was a great time. So he did not do the show, but he did lots of other things. He was a pretty, pretty, uh, in, in demand actor in his day. Uh, so he leaves and Trentino prepares to welcome his two spies. So then, uh, Harpo and Chico enter, which I think is a great sequence with, uh, Harpo with the spinning eyes. And, uh, then he turns around revealing that we're just seeing the back of his, <laughs> that's a pretty good, hey boss. I mean, that's <laughs> so good. This whole sequence is great to me. Sure, sure. I just yeah. love this whole sequence. I think it's uh, great. Uh, so Chicolini, uh, Chico's character and Pinky enter. 
I think in a manner not bound to encourage confidence, but for some reason Trentino has boundless confidence in his two spies. Uh, Chicolino explains in some detail their attempts to, to track Firefly's movements. Yeah, I think you're in dangerous territory when you try to figure out why are people reacting to yeah, the Marx true. Brothers the way they are. That's, that's just people react the way they are. Yeah, is yeah. she attracted to them? Is she horrified by them? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, does she think these guys are schmucks? Yeah. Does they think they're geniuses? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's that's whatever the, the gag calls for. Yeah. Let me just say that... Uh, Louis Calhoun is Margaret Dumont, of course, is as a great straight person. But uh, Louis, uh, as Trentino, Calhoun does a great job as well. I think he does a really good job, mm-hmm. kind of filling in. Apparently, there was an interview with Margaret Dumont from about 1940, and she explained her role in the Marx Brothers, which was to act as a pause. She was the pause in the scene. So the Marx Brothers do something or say something outrageous; it's a laugh. Her role is to make a pause. So she'll say things like. Oh, good heavens, or, you know, what can that man be doing? Sort of things like that, yeah. that act as a way to bridge to the next joke. Yeah. You know, that's her It's role. a rest in the musical thing. Yeah. yeah. And Calhoun's the same. There's a scene where he bends down and he says, I have two, I have, he has something for them. And he goes, now, where are they? And he says that because he's giving Harpo time to cut his coattails because he knows that Harpo hasn't had time yet. So he puts in a little, little pause there. Now, where did I put those? And then. Yeah. Harpo finishes cutting his coattails, he immediately stands up with them. It's very good. It's very good thinking on your feet, acting, I think. Here's here's why I think Margaret Dumont works, is she reacts to things without being... And she reacts to things in a big, interesting way. Uh, but she reacts to them without being hurt by them. Yeah. So you can now enjoy the jokes. Whereas if it was someone who Groucho was insulting that actually was getting saddened or yeah. uh, anger, like really yeah. affected... Yeah, and I think that's... That's that's the trick. Yes, there. yes. She she rolls her eyes. Sometimes she'll purse her lips in disapproval, mm-hmm. but she's never hurt by it. No, she's never hurt by it, and that's why it's okay. It's it, that's yeah. what makes it like a cartoon. Yes, you, you know. So you don't mind how many times uh, Yosemite Sam gets blown up because you're like, he's not really hurting. It's yeah, all fine. Yeah, yeah. He's getting mad. Mm-hmm. He's getting, uh, but it's fine. And and she's taking it. And also, she so clearly loves uh, Rufus T. Firefly. Yeah, or yeah. whoever the Groucho character of the film is. Yeah, that uh, it's fine. Yeah. It's all fine. It all, uh, it all, it all works out, and it, and and it makes the comedy stronger. You would think having someone react like "What?" would be better. Yeah. No dice. No. But even when right. you got a Zeppo, sometimes and he's reacting to things Groucho's saying because Zeppo is so stone faced yeah. and never reacts to anything. It doesn't work as well either. You go like, mm. "Well, that would be the perfect straight man." Wrong. Her reacts, but not not hurt. Yeah. And it's such a tricky thing to do, and she pulls it off. Yeah, she does really well. Like, yeah. Right. Okay. But you're right. The other fellow as well. Nice job. He does a good job. Yeah. And the, the film does the right thing too, which is the scene ends with, with Harpo. Okay. Let's just say things that are great in the film. The one is the, the shadow J joke, the, the, the tracking roof, uh, they're tracking Firefly and trying to see a baseball game, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he, they go to the game. He doesn't, you know, the, the next day he goes to the game. They don't, uh, the, none of them go <laughs> on Thursday. It was a double header. <laughs> Uh, there was no golf, there's no baseball game that ever showed up, you know. Well, you must have, you know, of course we did on Shadow Day. So good. <laughs> I love them, you know, when he needs a, the record, they pull out an actual record and then they throw it in the air and then Harpo fires at it and, you know, it basically does a skeet, skeet shoot with okay. it, shoots it in the air, wins a cigar, and then they take the cigar and, and hit it and they trip, it becomes a, some sort of, uh, one a cat or some kind of, you know, stick ball game. And, uh, yeah, just so much hijinks and fun. And then it ends with, with Harpo gluing the newspaper to um, Trentino's pants. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good punchline. It's a good punchline, and it cuts the right point, because you don't get his reaction to it. You don't get anger, you don't get anything. You just cut to the next scene. We don't need to know what, it, what he thought of it. Um, so, now, despite all their, what I would say is 
is things that um, wouldn't inspire confidence in me if I had spies. Uh, uh, Tintino is perfectly willing to give them a second chance to to dig up some dirt on uh, well, they, Firefly. They, they're, they're probably reasonable rates, you know. You know. I, I guess. Yeah. I guess so. So we cut to Firefly attending to his duties in the Chamber of Deputies by cutting the working hours of of <laughs> by shortening workers' lunches uh, to twenty minutes. It's you know here's what it is. It's cartoon logic. Yeah. In that you know they've been. It's like so the three Stooges have shown up. And they're the plumbers. Yeah. Well, this isn't their first day. They've been working as plumbers for years. Uh, but, can't, but you got to just assume this is a reality where this is okay. And same mm-hmm. thing with well, the spies. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They've been spies. This is what spies are like. It's fine. Um, Logic will kill you in these films. That's true. <laughs> when uh, there was a person in the film that I'm just like, I know who that actor is. That guy. He's not credited in the for the film, but he's an actor named Edwin Maxwell. Okay. And he... He's like in so many movies, like and and often uncredited, but like he's in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. He's in You Can't Take It With You. He's in my one of my favorite Harold Lloyd films, The Cat's Paw, which I mentioned earlier. Oh, good. Uh, he's in His Girl Friday. He's in Nanochka. He's in The Shop Around the Corner. He's just in all so many films, and he always kind of plays. He'll often play like a kind of a crooked lawyer or a kind of blustery businessman. In this case, he plays a a blustery politician who quits, and then that allows Chico to become Secretary of War. Mm-hmm. Um. So, Ciccolini, the spy, has set up his peanut stand yep. outside the government buildings. And then uh, we get the uh, this weird kind of, I don't know if it's supposed to mirror the, 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 the war of the, of the movie, but we get this kind of territorial dispute between uh, Ciccolini and the neighboring lemonade stand vendor, yep. played by Edgar Kennedy, which ends in the lemonade uh, vendor's hat ablaze in the, uh, the peanut stand's burner. Um, now, Edgar Kennedy was well known to McCary. He was a longtime Hellroach, uh, you know, feature character actor, you know, was the kind of the, the heavy in lots of movies. And he was basically, I think, a nickname like Mr. Slow Burn. Yeah. Because that was his that was his, his go to thing, you know, the the drag in your face, slapping your forehead, dragging your hands on your face sort of thing, reacting to. Uh, and like he he started acting in 1911 and he was in about 500 movies. It's just incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of those would be shorts through that period, but still, it's an amazing amount of work. And then he was also, uh, he was featured in a series of shorts that started off to be called the Average Man series, just called the Average Man. And then eventually they were called the Edgar Kennedy, you know, whatever. And, uh, Imagine Joint, the Edgar Kennedy Joint. I'm sure that's what they were called at the time. Uh, but they had like, they were basically kind of like, like an early version of like a situation comedies, like yep. domestic situation comedies where he's like a married man who's very put upon by his wife. And usually the, the 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 plot revolves around some sort of humiliation or embarrassing thing or whatever that happens to him. And he did them for seventeen years. He did, did them for a long time, and they were super popular as well. They were just they're a big a big deal in their day. Uh, now, then we get back to Chico calling out or Chico calling out Peanuts again, and that's when Harp or Groucho comes out and starts talking to him, and basically offers him a government job. Because why wouldn't you offer a peanut vendor sitting on the street a job? And so Chico goes into Firefly's office and and accepts the Secretary of War. Another scene I love so much. I love this scene as a kid because they had the uh, riddle in it. What's the riddle again? Uh, It's basically a complete nonsense riddle. Oh, yes, yes. That's right. Then he flips around on him. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's a big pain in the neck and has a big black mustache, (laughs) you know. Is he sitting in front of you? You know, I was going to give you this job, but now I'm not. What job is that? Secretary of War. I'll take it. Sold. (laughs) It's very good. Yeah, and the idea of Chico as Secretary of War is good. What do you think of the uh, of, of the lemonade stand uh, peanut uh, rivalry? Oh, uh, 
that one doesn't work for me. Yeah. You know, it's, it feels like, uh, they're not, he didn't do enough to deserve the comeuppance. And he actually seems like he, like, this is the DeMont thing. He actually seems to be really legitimately frustrated and hurt by yeah, everything. Yeah. And it's just like, no, nah, it's too far. Now you're burning his hat. Now you're burning <laughs> his hat again. And then later on, something with his wife. You know, it's just like, yeah, okay. It just doesn't feel yeah, like a good yeah. target for it. And, uh, and then it becomes two against one. And then it's like, okay, fine. Just didn't, didn't fly with me. Mm-hmm. You know, technically fine emotionally didn't fly yeah yeah um yeah i've never i don't have a problem with it it's not really I, a problem it's just i don't, I don't think it necessarily works as a as a target that's your problem you know yeah that's your problem with it i don't i don't really feel that way about it i think well it's not a problem because, because no everything doesn't have to be everything doesn't have to be perfect and some things are going to work and some things are not going to yeah. work but i'm and just saying it think, works it works for me yeah I don't think it's the best part of the film, and I think it could have not been in it and wouldn't hurt the film at all. It's really kind of weird. It's almost like a, it's almost like a sort of a pause in the in the activity of the movie, like like kind of a, let's just take a break and we'll just have this sequence. You know, it almost feels like it's from it. it almost feels like a Chaplin type thing where mm-hmm. you know Charlie Chaplin comes to New York and wants to start a a thing, and there's a mean guy in the corner who will muscle him out, and it's yeah. like okay, well now we're on, now we're going for it, but it feels like. Well, these guys are a couple of spies yeah. who aren't really doing this, but they're going to muscle this guy out of his business who's just trying to have business. Yeah. What's well, uh, okay? I mean, it's, you can be funny, but it, it's got no heart to it. It's got no, mm, you need him to bully them first or yeah. something. Or, yeah. And then, and then you can go to town, but it didn't have that. Mm. It didn't have the Bugs Bunny a moment where someone pushes Bugs Bunny to the point where, uh, relating to this, this film almost, war, yeah. this means war. Yeah. And then he's like, no, Bugs Bunny can do whatever he wants because they pushed him too far and now we're going to have some fun. And Didn't this, have that moment for me. And this was the movie that line came from. That's right. Yeah, no, I can I can understand that. And I, I, I If you're going to have a problem with it in that way, I, I can see <laughs> that for sure. You're acting like it's a problem. Well, no, it's like, it's not like it's a problem. Like everything, uh, we're not taking it as as a thing that everything is genius. Everything is genius unless you've got a problem with it. And then it's not. You can't start with a hundred percent. And then the only way it goes down is if you've got issues. It's like, you know, you, you judge it as like, Oh, that really worked for me. And that was about a 50 percenter. That was about a 75. I'll put it this way then. I can see why you don't like it. Is that okay? Because I just told you why. Yeah, I did. Just, <laughs> you don't have to see it. I, I actually just relate to you all the information. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I think I see what you're saying. Yes, what yeah. I was exactly saying. Okay. So I'll say this way. I can see why you don't like it, <laughs> but I like it. How's that sound? I like <laughs> Condescending. it. Condescending? I like it. I, yeah. I enjoyed it. That's fine. I enjoy I enjoy. I enjoy the the hat trading and the back and forth mm-hmm. and the... And the the pants in the pocket. I like There's him, good business. I like him cutting the pocket and then putting peanuts into it. Uh, Harpo cutting the po- pocket of uh, Edgar Kennedy and putting and then using it as a peanut bag. I I don't know. I just enjoy the little. The, and I think, but I will agree with you that I do think that. And there's they, no need that you have to agree with me. By no, the no, way, on I, any of this. I do think they need more of a build up to him as as a heavy. Like he needs to be more of a heavy in that sequence because essentially the 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 problem starts when Harpo bumps into him when when Chico and Harpo are fooling around and, it's, and you know and so he you know he has a reason to be aggrieved he got he was trying to you know ladle out lemonade to someone and then he gets bumped into by a guy mm-hmm. and then he's peeved sure you know so it needed to yeah it needed to have more of a of a back and forth but this movie for whatever reason was edited down to a skeleton. It's only a 68 minute movie. It's shorter than any other Marx Brothers film. I'd say if there's one problem I 
if I did have a problem. Uh, the problem would be the editing. Like, I think there's, um, I don't say bad editing, because that's just a dismissive thing. I think there's ineffective editing that uh, disrupts the comedy mm. quite often. And we'll get cuts to close-ups that break the pace mm-hmm. of the scene. Yeah. Uh, again, we'll get to more of that later on, where I think it's more egregious uh, than this. But quite often they'd be like, and now here's a close-up of Groucho, and it's like, oh, that throws you off. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas uh, something like The Coconuts obviously was shot just like a play mm-hmm. to its too too far in that direction. Yeah. I think we've gone too far into the let's edit it into something funny. We're like, just let it play. Yeah, let yeah. The, let the bit play out. Yeah. Okay. I think the yes, I think the Marx Brothers were experienced enough that they could sell sell the jokes without having to have the 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 editing, you know, give you that beat or right. whatever, you know, because. You know, Groucho actually delivered in a way, in his in a in his stage way, because he knew where the laughs were, and he would give a slight pause before he would go on with the next yeah. joke, which drove drove his writers crazy. But he knew that you needed to pause before you went on with the next with the next line. Absolutely, yeah. Um, all right. So we're carrying on with them in the office. So Harpo arrives. Of course, he answers the phone using his horns as a as a way. Yes, of, which is a cute little moment. Good in the horn movie. work. It's beginning to creep into a place where, where the later the later Marx Brothers films, I think, have a problem with Harpo where the early films, he doesn't want to speak. The later films, he can't speak. It's you always I mean? strange when someone says, what's the matter? Can't that guy talk? Mm-hmm. And like, well... Don't don't say that. Yeah, that's that to me is like going, hey, what's why is that guy's mustache painted on? It's like it's, <laughs> yeah. this is just the conceit. Yeah, exactly. Knock it, knock it yeah. off. And so that film, yeah. that scene has him going, you know, with a wah wah and stuff like that. And that sounds like, oh, so he has horns that he has set up so that he can talk on the phone. If he really wanted to talk on the phone, he he just couldn't. Like like I like it better if it's the idea that he doesn't talk because he doesn't want to, rather than he can't. You know, you know what I mean? See, this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna play the Dave role okay. and just go. Who cares? Like the whole thing is <laughs> he doesn't talk. Yeah, and I and I'm more of that of like mm-hmm. don't break the reality of having someone say you know comment on it. Yeah, or try to go like oh he could if he wanted to, but now he's using horns. It's like no. The reason I say that is because yeah. uh, because I know what's coming, and mm. so I feel like this is like one of the one of the early signs of I think a later problem in yeah. the film. One of the few one of the few times, and I'm trying to remember film what series. film it was in that I liked a little bit of the commentary on that was uh, oh yeah. It was, I think it was someone who knew, uh, Chico and Harpo in prison and just, uh, when did you become Italian? I was like, that's enough of that. We're going to get into that. It's like, that's fine. That's yeah. just like a little brief, eh, that's fine. Yeah. But a character sincerely going, what's his deal? Yeah, Not yeah. Enough. Yeah. No. His deal is, this is what he is. He's a spy. It's all fine. Move on. I, I do like that, uh, Grocho only writes with his big giant quill pen because he likes to wiggle it around. <laughs> and once Harpo snips it, he just throws it aside. Ah, it's not, okay. It's not fun I didn't pick anymore. up on that, but that's good. It's not yeah. fun anymore for him. And then I also like when uh, Harpo leaves. And then, well, like, there's something that is a very Macari-esque touch is um, when uh, Grocho throws uh, Chico out of the office after some, when he actually makes some lump, lame gag. And he just kind of throws him out and there's a bunch of noise. And it, it sounds like he's been thrown on the stairs or something like that. That's a very Macari-esque thing. He loved off-screen Sound effects and sure. something, something happening in the awful truth, the Cary Grant film. Um, there's a scene where he gets in a fight with a character, a big fight with this guy he thinks is, is uh, having an affair with his wife. Uh, but it's all off screen. Mm-hmm. So you don't actually see the fight. You just hear a bunch of noises and stuff like that, which is the best way, I think, to have a fight in, in a comedy. Um, yeah. Put it in your imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Because then it's not violent. It's just 
something. Yep. But you're not sure what it is. It's a lot of noise. So then, uh, oh yeah, so uh, Pinky Leaves and Bob Roland, Zeppo enters, and then we have that great gag with the hat being cut. Yes. Bisected exactly. Yeah, that was a very nice joke. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. And this is way of. And good timing on uh, Zeppo on that yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good little bit there. It seems to me, if, uh, if you're thinking, more of that. Zeppo reacting to stuff. Mm-hmm. It's good. Yeah. Should, should do that, but. Eh. Yeah. No. Zeppo, I think, is at, well. Zeppo was very happy that uh, they only had one more film left on their contract at this point. His his exit strategy was in place mm-hmm. at this point. I mean, he'd wanted to leave for years, but they'd signed a contract to do these films for Paramount. And the Depression also was a informing factor. You know, the fact that you could leave the act, you could leave this cushy job, but where are you going to go? Where's money? Where's money outside of the Marx Brothers? For someone like Zeppo, he's, you know, like Zeppo, is interesting thing about Zeppo was that he didn't join the act because he wanted to. He joined the act because his mom forced him to, kind of like Gummo. Mm-hmm. Once, once Gummo had an out and jumped for the chance to leave the act, he took it. Then Zeppo had to come in. Zeppo had a different life than the other Marx Brothers did. Zeppo was very deeply, very deeply involved in criminal activities in Chicago. He carried, he was with one guys who carried guns. They did questionable things. They stole cars and things like that. Like he was going down a very dark road because his mom wasn't there. His mom was on the road with, with his mm. brothers. His dad was very much uh, absentee dad, even if he was there. Right. And you know, Zebo had no, and he had, his older brothers were never, never there for him. Really, they, they, they worked, so they had you know no way to be there for him. And so yeah, he was just heading down this very dark road. In fact, the day that he was called up to become a Marx brother, he and a friend had agreed, had arranged dates with a couple of girls. And when I say a date with the girls, they were basically going to take him to the bushes and have some fun. Yeah. And it turned out to be a bit of a, a fix. So Zeppo left, so his friend did it by himself, and it turned out to be uh, it turned out to be a trap. This girl's these girls' brothers were in, waiting for for them, assuming that both Zeppo and and uh, his friend were going to be there. And his friend was set upon by these guys. He shot them. I think he killed one of them. Went to jail and for a long time. And but uh, Zeppo avoided all of this by this happenstance of being called up to join the act. He wasn't a full partner of the act, though. He never he never like the other three brothers were had a stake in Marx Brothers. He didn't. He was a paid employee of the Marx Brothers. And it did not look at any time in his career as a Marx Brother that he was ever going to escape that situation and become yeah. a full fully paid up fourth fourth brother. And so, you know, he was just waiting for the opportunity to to skedaddle. His mom was dead, his dad was gone, so there was no no familial obligation for him to stay anymore. So yeah. He was just Wait, biding his time at this point. Okay. So I don't think he cared much about his role in this film. Did he do anything in showbiz afterwards? We'll talk about that. All right, there we go. I was wondering, like with uh, with like a Groucho and a chick on a Harpo, when they at the end of day, when you say like they want to be off at six, do they go off and uh, when they take off the uh, grease paint and the wigs yep. and the hats, yep. can they blend in? Yeah. Like they yeah. drop the uh, they drop the accents and oh, yeah. can they just go? Can Chico go to the racetrack and no one knows it's Chico? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think Zeppo could. I think Zeppo would like go out and if you know he's in the number one movie at Paramount that year, everyone's like, hey, they, <laughs> like there's none of that for him. But yeah. the other guys, it feels like they probably could just sure. go live a life. Sure. But luckily for Zeppo, he's in, only in the movie for a few seconds, so people probably forgot what he looked like by the time the film was Quite over. Quite the profile, that guy. He did have a... He wasn't a bad-looking guy, but he no, has no, his, that's a, thing. a Is very that... aquiline nose. Like, it just kind of followed the shape of his forehead yeah. right down to the tip. Easy to caricature. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, like, Groucho Marx, there's a story of Groucho Marx where this producer-director named Archie Mayo had moved into the neighborhood and met up with Groucho one day and said, hey, anytime you want to... And Groucho did not have a pool in this backyard of his property. He did not think you should have a pool in, the, in your backyard. 
but it was okay to use other people's pools. And right. so Archimedes said to him one day, hey, anytime you, you know, your family, your kids want to go swimming, you're welcome to use our pool. Well, he didn't have to ask Grocho twice. <laughs> so that day, he troops on over and starts using Archie Mayo's pool. Well, his wife comes out, and here's this person she doesn't recognize with with his kids swimming in the pool. And, of course, he won't give her a straight answer when she starts trying to find out who he is. <laughs> He's just teasing her and giving her all kinds of, of, you know, basically treating her like Margaret Dumont. She is not treated taking it in a Margaret Dumont-like manner. She is yeah. very angry. Ah, she should have gone for a swim. Uh, cool down. I think she called the police. When the police arrived, then the, the situation was was uh, figured out. But yeah, it was, uh, you know. <laughs> and Groucho shot them, and he went to jail, and it was a real Zeppo. Story. Yeah, it was a real Zeppo situation. Yeah, if only. Very lucky he wasn't around. If only Zeppo had. Yeah, luckily Zeppo wasn't there again. He escaped it again. Um, yeah, no, they just could leave and and uh, and. At that time... That's a good thing for a comedian. For a comedian to be able to go out and be a regular person, mm-hmm. that's how you gather things and you... Yeah, that's that's good. I'm glad to hear that they had that. Yeah, yeah. Later on, of course, Groucho would make himself look like his character would grow on the mustache and make yeah. always walking around with a cigar. It's like, are you Groucho? Of course, he's Groucho, but yeah. Yes, that was... that was The reason for that was because of You Bet Your Life. Yes. It was... They wanted... The, the network wanted him to have a mustache and they wanted him to have a painted on mustache. Mm. And he said, no. No, I'm not going to do that. So he, as a compromise, he grew a mustache. But he didn't like it. He didn't like a mustache. He wasn't a mustache fan. Nope. Okay. I don't know where we are now. Back to the film. Uh, oh, Bob Roland has a letter for, for Firefly in which, in which Trentino insults the president. Roland suggests a plan to Firefly, the idea being that he'll insult Trentino in such a way that Trentino, outraged, will slap Firefly and that will give mm. them a reason to throw him out of the country. Very good. Uh, and so, Firefly leaves for the garden party, which he hadn't been invited to, by the way, but he hears about it from Bob Roland. Uh, he goes to the garden party, goes outside to find his car, and of course, Pinky comes on, on, on his motorbike, comes up with a sidecar, and then once again, yeah, drives great, off, great leaving bit. Firefly sitting in the sidecar. We cut to Mrs. Teasdale's garden party. Trentino complains to Vera Markel that his attempts to woo Mrs. Teasdale are constantly being foiled by Firefly. Markel assures the ambassador that Firefly won't be coming by miming, tearing up something so we figured that she tore up the invitation and threw it yep. away so he never got an invitation so he will not be coming but just as she says this here comes firefly onto the comes to the party by the way it doesn't seem like the perfect setup as well as like uh groucho uh we haven't invited groucho to our garden party yeah miss teasdale's garden party perfect that's yeah. great okay here we go let her roll <laughs> let her we roll. have it okay go uh so no sooner so firefly barges in on trentino proposing to mrs teasdale making time with her while insulting Trentino. Mm-hmm. They trade insults, but contrary to Roland's plan, it is Firefly who loses his temper at being called an upstart, and he strikes the ambassador with his glove, handy glove, that he just happened to have in his pocket. Yes. Now, war seems inevitable. Cries once more for his excellency's car, bring Pinky on his motorbike and sidecar. Now, Firefly is too smart for this. He gets in the, on the motorbike. Yeah, this is where he's daffy-ducking it. Making Yeah, he's going to get it. All you right, here you go. get into the sidecar, I'm going to get on the motorbike, Immediately, the sidecar takes off. Yes, leaving uh, him sitting there. And if you look closely, you can see a wire that pulls the sidecar. Ah, nice. So now, this is a kind of a weird time element in the film. I'm not. You're not actually sure when things are happening. You just know it's later because it cuts to something. We cut to Pinky attending uh, to Tickleini's peanut stand by himself. What are you laughing at? I'm laughing at your paperwork. Oh yes, <laughs> this is hard. I know you're trying to be very quiet with the paper, and uh, and you're making faces while you're doing it, so it's delightful. Doing a gookie. Um, the lemonade seller saunters over with his brand new straw boater. Oh, that poor nice new straw hat. And takes some peanuts without paying for them. His new hat soon ends up on the burner. Yeah. And in retaliation, he overturns the peanut stand 
only to find his own customers driven away by Pinky paddling barefoot in his lemonade bowl. And think he, I think he's up so upset. You know, the customers are so upset by it because, as everyone knows, lemonade isn't wine. So it's okay to to stunt, you know, to crush yeah. grapes with your feet. Like I not. don't even know if, uh, like, I get it for the gag, like yeah. that you want him to be able to like get into it. Yeah. But that does not look like a hygienic lemonade uh, thing. It's yeah. Open on the top, it's gonna get <laughs> bugs in it. There's no way it's gonna get bugs. Yeah. And yeah. also, when he's scooping up the lemonade to give it to a person, yeah, dude, it's not even close to getting in the glass. Yeah. Come on, settle down. But I like everyone <laughs> just like slowly walking away when they see uh, Harpo in there. <laughs> oh yeah. And of course, him looking like do do. Maybe the creator of the idea of dough. Uh, no, that was uh, Laurel and Hardy. Uh, uh, Dan Kestelan, that I has it. It was a Laurel and Hardy uh, straight person who was reacting. And yeah, would Edgar go, Kennedy was in Laurel and Hardy movies. Oh, was he? Yeah. Oh, he did the slow dough. Yeah, he would go dough. That might have been a different. There was a two. There was two different. Okay, but Kestelan said the slow yeah. dough is okay. Uh, is the one that he yeah. he stole, and then he sped it up. Nice. Um, so. We're, blah, 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 we were uh, blah, 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 at the blah. lemonade stand. So, Trentino is still eager to avoid war and marry into Mrs. Teasdale's millions. He explains that war can be avoided if he and Firefly can forgive and forget the incident. Firefly is happy to oblige, but while they jokingly refer to the argument, he is once again sent into a rage by the word upstart, and out comes the glove. Trentino can see no other outcome than war. Now, this sequence has, I think, if, we want, if we're going to have a problem or not like a joke in the movie, this is the scene... Where we have the headstrongs marry the armstrongs, and that's oh, okay, why darkies yeah. were made. Yeah, which is a joke that of its time had currency. Yep. In the sense that there was a f- song that had come out about two years before the film was sure. made, sung by Kate Smith, who of course was famous to me for singing "God Bless America" during Philadelphia Flyers games when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. She sang a song uh, called "That's Why Darkies Were Made." This was a popular song. It was also sung by Paul Robeson, mm-hmm. uh, the famous singer. You know, uh, and I think the idea of the song. I looked at the lyrics for it online, and basically the song is telling us that because white people don't want to do this stuff, there's black people there to do it for them. Which I don't, and I think it was supposed to be a satire of that of that idea, but just reading them as as straight lyrics, it's hard. It's a very subtle joke if that's the idea of let, it. Let me, let me do just a bigger thing going like yeah out of because where are we? Are we five movies deep? Yeah, five movies okay. deep. Yeah. So so far I've only had two things where I went like, well, that's just not. Uh, of now at all yeah and yeah. one was the uh groucho saying to the woman uh in a baby voice because she was baby voice yeah, back, yeah you know i'm gonna kick your teeth down your throat yeah and i'm like okay well that was uh nope so uh <laughs> and then there's this one that just is like a clear nope nope yeah. that was a uh clanger. that was a clear yeah. clanger of the era uh but it's what it was I- i'm just i'm just a on the positive side, yeah. out of all these movies, to just have those two clangers yeah. of off. Oh, oh, what are we doing? We're yeah, doing yeah. that. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. But like out of all all that, sure. that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Like I can't go through uh, like five Looney Tunes without uh, someone getting in blackface and something something happening. Yeah. You know. So uh, I'm gonna say on the positive side, good on them for yeah. uh, for the for like ninety nine percent of the time. Yeah. Being all right. Uh, and uh, to that joke, yeah, uh, yeah. Ugh. yeah, and I think that if we go by the Marx Brothers, we'll go by Groucho's uh, axiom as a performer. Is that if they don't laugh at it, it's not, it's, it's no good. Uh-huh. You know, that's a joke that would not, he would just come out now. I mean, he had, you know, at the time people laughed at it because it referenced something that people knew. But people laugh at people laugh at a, a, a okay, people laugh when a bully is beating you up. There's people standing in the school laughing. Mm. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a good bit. 
Yeah. You know, it's still bad, <laughs> right? People laugh at, let's say, a president yeah. saying a no, horrible no, I'm not. I'm not defending. The, I'm not defending the joke. No, no, I understand. Yeah. But I'm just saying, if laughter is the only barometer that we're mm. using, yeah. uh, then the the bully has that power as well. And I'm so, talking. I'm talking as an entertainer. I understand. A, I, I understand as an entertainer. Not as a, not as a student. In I, under, school. I understand. It's a different. Uh, and as an entertainer, yeah. Uh, here's where I, here's where it like does make me sad is like, cause you know, uh, you know, you know, there was like black people watching these movies, yeah, right? Yeah. So you go out to see this movie mm-hmm. and you're watching the movie and you're having a good time and everything's great. And then that comes up and there's just that little cold, cold moment where you're not, you're not part of this. We're laughing. But, but was it? That's my, that's the thing I yeah. have, that's weird about yes. it because if Paul Robeson yes. sang the song, mm-hmm. if it was a song that was sung by white and black people, right? then... You know, it's, just, it's hard to put ourselves back in that time period, uh-huh. of course, because we don't live in that. We don't live there anymore. But, that but time here's is one so thing we do know: us. it wasn't great to be to be black back then. No, it wasn't. That's true. It wasn't great. Yep. So let's just go that that uh, most things that talked about you in entertainment, you were the object of the joke because of uh, how you looked, how you were. It wasn't uh, about personality. It was just. It was you were you were the the other that was to be laughed at, and so that the song is is an othering song so i'm going to make the assumption that at least some people uh, who were watching the movie felt that way and felt like oh, you're yeah, not I, you're not part of this no, yeah i have no doubt that so it not, for that yeah. for that yeah, and i know because yeah. this is this is the discussion you have about like you know can you judge uh past comedy on on present present values and it's it's most past comedy uh, is of its time as well. So yeah. the, the joke itself mm-hmm. will be lost to you. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like there's so many jokes in this that we're not getting the references to at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on, but on that one, yeah, I know they, they, that, that I was reading a little bit about that one because I went like, really? Um, <laughs> and I went like, was this ever cut? Uh, and it was cut. Yeah, it was cut in the 70s. It was cut until the, cut until the 80s, I think it was, right? Well, once, once the movie when was When it was put on, on television, they would, they would remove that. They would remove it. But once it was put on home video, Whereas home video had this idea of that you're getting the whole film, and you like can put a getting... warning on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas right. you would not, like, if you were watching uh, the 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 afternoon movie when you were mm-hmm. a kid, it wouldn't before the movie go. There's some sex and violence coming up. Yeah, heads up. It was yeah. like there was no warnings. Yeah, it was just it is what it is. So I understand how they would do that. So mm-hmm. when you're buying the video, it could go listen on the back. Some this, some of that. Yeah, heads up about this. I don't know if they put that that or you know. I know when uh, when I used to watch again Looney Tunes or uh, some Looney Tunes or some Disney cartoons, you would have Leonard Malton would show up beforehand and go, "Hey, how's it going? I'm Leonard Malton." Anyway, listen, it was a different time. Yeah, some things. We're just saying here. Okay, you bought it, right? Yeah. It's your choice to watch it. Yeah. Um, here it is. Yeah. And there. So there's a bit of that. And that. So that I have no issue with them cutting it from from television. I don't like the idea of it being cut out in a something that is meant as a as an archive of that what it sure. what it was. You should have you should have a full version yeah. available as per per your choice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I, yeah, like I say, I when that when that joke hits, you know, it's a real dead spot in in that scene and in a way it kind of derails the scene now because you know, it's just so yeah. shocking. Like you're just like, "What?" Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, that's a real look around the rumor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> None of us laughed at that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll get into this more in our Kate Smith podcast. Yes. Where we really do a deep dive on her. Well, ooh, that sounds, that sounds terrible. Uh, so after, uh, so, okay, so we end that scene with Upstart, out comes, uh, so 
Trentino orders Ciccolino, uh, Ciccolini and Pinky to get Fridonia's war plans. Yes. Uh, Fireflies. Always a bad idea to get these guys to get any kind of plans, <laughs> do any kidnapping. <laughs> Haven't they learned yet? Yes. Haven't they seen in these other movies? Firefly has placed these sensitive documents in the care of Mrs. Teasdale. Of course you would. Yep. The local multimillionaire widow. widow of course, that's the, who, who better to look after war plans? So Ciccolini and Pinky will have to break into her house with the help of Vera Marcal, who is a house guest. Uh, after some less than professional hijinks, there's the great sequence of them trying to get in the house where yep. they, they knock on the door, one of them goes in, and they Ding switch. dong ditch. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so silly. Yeah, that was a good bit. But it's, it's fun. Uh, they, um, they meet up with Vera Markel, who once again, wearing a beautiful, some sort of fur, uh, robe of some sort that, uh, she tantalizingly has to constantly hold closed mm-hmm. through the whole scene. Yeah. Not only is she holding the train with one hand, she has to keep it closed. Yeah. Because whatever she's wearing underneath, is too revealing even for pre-production code movies. Oh, I wish that it had fallen over, just, fallen open just a little bit, just so I could know exactly what what was the issue here. But it doesn't. I think you know. She keeps it. She keeps it together. <laughs> yeah, she keeps it together. But uh, so, uh, Chickalini and Pinky end up disguised as Firefly, who has been locked in the bathroom. Right. And we get the one bathroom bit of humor in the film, which is "Let me out" or "Throw me a magazine." Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, that's nice. the one little bit of bathroom humor. You know what? People in the past were just like us. Yep. Good for them. Yeah. We all know that. The issues of Look magazine in the uh, in the outhouse. Mm-hmm. Classic joke. So then they, they end up disguised as Firefly. And again, looking quite a bit like, like yes. Firefly. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they are. Because they have those nightcaps the over their hair. Caps, so yeah, yeah, that keeps it... So Harpo gets the uh, combination for the, for the, for the have safe. We, have we done the bit where are we in... De- with DeMont yet? In a room? Okay. What do you want to say about that? I just want to say I like when uh, she watches one of them leave and then the other one comes out from <laughs> under the bed and it's, it's like, you left! And it's like, no, it's great. Yeah, she's starting to undress and... Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, she's yeah. doing like, just getting undressed and then... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Such a proper lady. Um, so, Pinky attempts to open this, this, the safe. Right. Which turns out to be a... Radio. Radio. Of course, playing... Uh, some sort of what America, yeah, it's like da, 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 or something. Yeah, yeah, stars and shapes forever. Yeah, that's what it's playing. Uh, popular song to play at midnight or whatever they're they're trying to break into in Fredonia. Apparently, in Fredonia, the Fredonia yeah, well. radio station for some reason yeah. plays stars and stripes forever. Big, big Odd. fan of it. Yeah. You know what? I would say that uh, you know Groucho would probably just steal uh, America's songs. He's not going to sure. have new ones. Yeah, he doesn't want new things. So who's gonna Who's gonna tell him different? Um... So, of course, Pinky smashes the radio. He yep. plays it with seltzer. He finally throws it out the window. Uh, meanwhile, Firefly has escaped from the bathroom and uh, calling for the guard. He pursues Pinky, who in a panic smashes a full-length, full-wall mirror. I don't know why they have that situated where it is in the house, but there you go. For it's the bit. There for a bit. Um, we don't have to question that. Uh, he attempts to fool Firefly into thinking that he is his reflection. And Firefly, in a classic bit. Oh, it's great. It's a classic bit. Yep. Though flawed to me because of just the sheer amount of edits. What edits? Oh, there's all these like edits. There's all these like cuts, and then it's like cuts and cuts and cuts and cuts. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. There's oh, a lot I feel of like edits. Dis- Are you sure? It wasn't, like a, it wasn't a one shot. It wasn't no, a one shot. No, 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 no. Because in my mind, I'm just watching from a distance the two of them trying to match each yeah. other. And in your mind, that's true. But in okay. the film, it's not. There oh. was just like edit, edit, edit. And it was like jarring edits where it would just be like a little, a little different. Oh, okay. That just took you a little bit out of it. Oh, okay. You know, and they're all funny bits. Oh, I didn't but really it would be that. hilarious if it was all 
done in one, which is weird because all of the parodies I've seen of it yeah. are all done in one. Huh. And so it was like a little bit jarring. But yeah. it's still, no, it's still a solid. It's great because what makes it great to me yeah. isn't just, isn't the fact that they're matching mo- movements because they're not really perfect. No. I mean, that's not the point of it, though. No. The point of it is that Grocho wants to prove, he wants to prove that, that it's Harpo and not him that's this reflection. You know, that's why he's so pleased when he sees, when he circles around through the mirror. That isn't enough for him that they just circled through the mirror together and one has gone to the other side and then back around again. It's the fact that Harpo is holding a top hat and Grocho has a fedora. Mm-hmm. And now he's got him. That's the important part. He's smiling. He's, yeah. he's nodding that kind of, I've got you now. And then Harpo's on his back. You think so, do you? And then they put the hat on suddenly, and it's no longer a top hat. Harpo now has a fedora as well. Darn it. So they have to continue this. You know, it's nothing to do with, like, the. they've already broken the reality. They've, they've gone through the mirror. Whatever reality is, yeah. But it's, I, just love, I just love that part of it. You know, you know what's funny. Yeah, and it's nice that it's a, it's a Harpo bit with, with him, because normally he, he does the bits with uh, Chico. That's right. Very seldom he does a Harpo, oh, yeah, Harpo very, bit. Yeah. But it's... Um, to me, again, when he's with Chico or when he was with Harpo here, it's a lot like, again, I'm going to go back to Looney Tunes cartoons. Uh, you know, usually have like Daffy Duck or Bugs Bunny and they've got the stiff mm-hmm. and they're bouncing off the stiff and the stiff is just being fooled over and over and over again. But then they have a series of cartoons where Daffy is in on the bit yeah. and he'll pull the wig off Bugs and go, it's not a lady, it's a rabbit. Yeah. And he'll show it up because he, he's, he's hip, he's hip to it. He gets it. Uh, and that's what, that's when it's really funny because then their two styles of comedy are, 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 are strengthening each other. And that's the same thing with, uh, Groucho when he's with Chico. And it's like Groucho's still doing his wisecracks, but yeah. Chico's in his own reality. Yeah. But sometimes Groucho gets sucked into Chico's reality and sometimes, uh, Chico gets sucked into Groucho's reality. And it's the same thing with like Harpo here where Groucho gets sucked into Harpo's reality, but yeah. it's still Groucho. Yeah. And it's still getting Groucho laughs, but then getting suckered again by Harpo and Harpo's getting Harpo laughs out of Groucho. And it's a tricky bit of business to do, but it's great when they do it. Yeah. It just takes everything way up yeah it's funny I, and it's it's funny that you were t- brought out of the film by by the, you noticing the editing which i've obviously never you know never I've it's seen, never caused me to stumble i'm gonna blame you because here's the thing you turned me on to like buster keaton yeah and you turned me on to to films like that yeah and i think part of what works in those films is when you do have like a bit yeah. or even a chaplain yeah. you'll you'll have a bit and you'll see it all play out yeah and if you had a cut any cut mm-hmm. will just make it uh, it just takes you out a little bit it's true yeah. yeah, and I think like yeah. it, that was so good, and there was no real reason aside from rehearsal would have been a nightmare to get it all in one go. Yeah, uh, to to not have it all be one thing. But, but they could have they could have locked the camera off. Yeah, and just so it and keep it there, and just you know, and then you know, and so they could have like subtle editing you know they could have subtle edits maybe not. yeah but again i think like because it's such a set stage bit mm-hmm. it's the kind of bit you could actually do on stage yeah and it would just destroy and i'm sure people have done it on stage Such again as it's the Schwartz brothers it's yeah it's so replicated yeah uh and the replications always do it without the editing so yeah but you know listen they did it, it they did it best there we go it's really good i yeah. don't have yeah. a problem with it I've never seen... <laughs> I'm sorry that you had a problem with it. Is that no, what you just said? I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> and that's how a non-apology goes. <laughs> I do... No, I am... I am seriously saddened that you don't like this movie. Oh, don't I be do. saddened. I liked uh, uh, that's, that's Bits. That's I funny. like Bits, and I like most of the movies beforehand. Um, no need so for a saddening. The scene, the scene breaks down when... when uh, 
Chico accidentally stumbles into the mirror as well. And so now we have two. Yeah, of them. that's good. That breaks the nice scene. escalation there. Grocho grabs onto Chico's <laughs> night- nightgown and Chico is arrested and is charged with treason. And then you have the uh, the newspaper headline. Yes, that's right. Uh, was it Chico- again? What's his name again? Uh, Chicolini. Uh, yeah, convicted of treason. Charged, charged, charged with, with treason. treason. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that used uh, in political cartoons over and over again, or you know, memes or whatever. Yeah, it's like, okay. It's such a great, okay. It's such a great picture. It's such a great setup. And, once again, I have not. I've never seen. And it. once again, this was another movie we didn't mention where newspaper headlines really push the plot along yes. when necessary. Yes, they certainly loved that exposition yep. device. It's a transition, and it shows time has passed. I guess that's true. I guess that's a, what it's best best for. Uh, so, in the result, uh, so yeah, Pinky escapes, but Chico is put on trial for treason. So, uh, interestingly, the prosecutor in this sequence is an actor named Charles B. Middleton, who uh, began acting at the age of 46, which I think perfect oh. time to change your career in a major way. But in a, so he, And he performed for a further 30 years and it made about 200 films. Wow. All these people are just like, yeah. he started at 61 and made 2,000 movies yeah. in the next three years. Because in those days, the, it really was a factory. <laughs> like the, the Hollywood, in the, you know, the, it was a factory. It just, they yeah. pumped out movies. Uh, by by uh, by why i'm laughing because i'm just picturing that during this they had like five other cameras that were shooting different movies at the same time and go we'll work it in yeah just do some judgy stuff oh great sounds good but you're right that could have happened on the same studio someone could have said we need uh we need a charles b middleton type well he's already here doing the scene shooting this movie in this soundstage once he's finished there we'll send him over to soundstage three or whatever and he, he can do his scene there okay that sounds good you know like yeah i'm for sure uh, but he's most famous for playing uh, Ming the Merciless in the uh, Flash Gordon serials. Oh, all right. He's in the three Fla- Flash Gordon serials. Very good. So you have seen him. I am very familiar with those, yes. yes. We did uh, voiceovers of those for a comedy thing I did once, yes. Also in this sequence, uh, sitting beside uh, Groucho when he's sitting at the, the long table, at the, sort of the council table, uh, facing down Chico, is uh, there's a man with a big mustache sitting beside him, and that's a guy named Frederick Sullivan, who was also used in monkey business. He was one of the guys, one of the victims of their bad pickpocket attempts. Uh, mm. He was the nephew of Arthur Sullivan, of Gilbert and Sullivan fame. Oh, very good. So, of course, Groucho being a huge fan would have been so pleased to have him there uh, as a featured extra. Uh, so the trial, or more accurately, uh, the double talk pun parade, yep. is interrupted by news of advancing Sylvanian troops. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, let's just say good yeah. double talk. Oh, yes, the best. Yeah. The eliminate, the irrelevant, the dollars taxes, uh, yep. all that stuff is, is great. It's fantastic. Nobody can nobody can deliver that kind of garbage like like Chico. Like Chico could elevate yeah. like this the most when painful te- puns. Oh yeah, when you're telling me that they did uh they, they were the lawyer thing. Well, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear that. That'd be mm. that's the perfect setup for him because it's a nice. Uh, there's a there's a position of authority beyond them. Yeah, uh, and they can uh, bounce bounce off it, mm-hmm. and uh, the judge can get more and more frustrated. That's great. <laughs> so Trentino is on his way for last minute peace talks, which fire which of course Firefly is prepared to accept. The original draft of the movie Firefly was an ammunition dealer who was trying to, it was trying to engineer a war into breaking out so he could sell product. Yeah. But this film drops all that stuff, so it's just, you know, instead it becomes about his ego, uh, and so we get this, uh, the sequence, pretty famous nowadays, the idea of someone becoming so worked up at the idea of someone uh, in- insulting them in some way, that when the person arrives, he just faces the wrath of this person, the mysterious wrath of of Groucho to Trentino, who barely barely walks in the room, but only to get a glove in the in the face, and that is it. War yeah. is declared. War is official now. this means war. Yes, this means war. 
Uh, this means war. This means no, war. Fredonia. Yeah. Perhaps not aware of the horrible realities of war. <laughs> Start a fantastic celebration of the idea of this country's going to war. But this is one of my favorite uh, Marks Brothers sequences of all time. I sure. love this whole thing. I love it in every way. I just love all the songs. Yeah. I love their behavior during the songs. I love the I love the Heidi 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 Ho the Cab Calloway borrowing mm-hmm. of that with them laying on the ground kicking their feet up in the air and stuff like that. Uh, them playing the banjo for uh, We Got Guns, All God Chillin's Got Guns. Yeah. You know. Um, basically, um, once again, it was a little. It's a little weird to me that you've had. You just need like one or two more Zeppos through the movie, so that when you see Zeppo here, you don't go, "Hey, Zeppo's back!" <laughs> yeah, Zeppo. Oh, apparently he's hanging out with these guys. He yeah. knows. Uh, yeah. He occasionally looks like he's a guy who won uh, won a role in a Marx Brothers movie in a contest, and then just shows up. <laughs> um, yeah, like this. This sequence parodies a lot of things. It parodies Holly, big Hollywood musicals. Sure. It parodies patriotic anthems. It parodies sort of the, the white spirituals, the sort of minstrel, minstrelry yeah. of that, that time period. Like all that stuff kind of gets wrapped up into this sequence and it's uh, all of it there with the, uh, yeah, they have a lot of fun with it. And uh, I think it's really great. Pinky mysteriously, suddenly he's no longer a spy for the for Sylvania. Now he's leading the, the, the guard in, into the yeah. se- sequence and then he cuts off their to, tassels. They, they do the xylophone part of the song yeah. and cut off their tassels in, in, in uh, time. And then we have the uh, then we have the the kind of weird tableau of the Revolutionary War tableau of them now suddenly I don't know where they're dressed in Revolutionary War. Oh, there's uh, lots costumes. of costume changes. This kind of heralds that, doesn't it? Uh, and then uh, uh, Pinky goes on his night ride as Paul Revere, which, as you as you mentioned earlier, ends ends in a weird sequence where he sees a woman in two sequences. Yeah, it's a, he sees yeah. a woman. The one sequence I can I think is more in line with with Harpo's character. Okay. The first sequence, although we know he's a woman chaser. Yeah. Uh, and he sees a woman in her underwear, <laughs> starting a bath. Yep. Uh, which I'm not complaining about. Yeah. So he goes, uh, checks he, that out. He goes inside. He uh, importunes in a way that is harmless and yet irritating to her. Yeah. Uh, she tries to get him to tries to throw him out. He. Uh, and yet, when when hubby comes home, yes, she seems to be defending him. I think, well, she's not just, she doesn't want the husband to know that there's this man in the house that she did not invite into the house. She is innocent of all. But no, if, I if he's discovered there, she, he's, the husband's going to be mad at her. Yeah. Right? So yeah. she is trying to like, have you heard the country's declared war? Here's your gun. Go and defend. And he's like, I'm going to have a bath. And so yeah. he, so it's Arthur Kennedy has returned again, the lemonade vendor for one last, uh, ignominious thing to happen to him. He gets into the bathtub. By the way, he's naked. I don't, the, as, I don't know as, how he takes a bath. As the character, he's naked, he's in the bath. He sits down in the bath, there's the, the honk of the horn. He tries it again, the horn honks. Yeah. And then the sound of a bugle and cheek and sorry, and then Harpo or Pinky rises out of the water. Yeah. Between the legs of of uh Ed, or is that Edgar Kennedy? Did I say Arthur Kennedy? That's mm-hmm. a different actor. Edgar Kennedy uh rises out from between his legs and then proceeds to, in a very noble way, leave the bathroom, pointing to the door and uh then he gets he mysteriously and, drives and, off. And, and again, uh, I don't want to write a joke, but it feels like at that point the callback joke would mm-hmm. be standing at the end of the bathtub and then just like bashing it like he was with the lemonade. Oh, okay. You know, which would then like you yeah. know make him have to cover his face for a bit, and then he could yeah, you know, take yeah, off. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it's there you go. It's, it's nice it's and silly. cartoony. It's good. It's silly. All right. You know, if I saw it when I was a kid, I would have thought it was the cat's pajamas. Sure. I have to admit. It's, uh, if you're a horror movie fan, uh, Freddy Krueger does it, uh, to different effect <laughs> in Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one. Okay. Yes. Uh, 
So that's that one. So then he gets back on his horse. He's riding. And then he gets an invitation from a different girl. Yeah. This time she invites him into her Doesn't place. it feel like they went, we got two things we could do. Which one do we pick? Why not do them both? Let's do them both, yeah. Really? Does it work with both? Yeah. Eh, I don't know. Let's, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of sexy ladies in this town. Sure. They're all. Once again, no complaints from me. All right. I have right, no problem. Please with, continue. Uh, Tell I have me. no problem with pre-code movies. It's sure, one of my sure. favorite things on, on a TV station I like a lot. TCM Turner Classic Movies. Yeah. When they do Turner uh, Codeless movies. When they do their pre-haze, when they do their pre-haze office or pre-production code movie movies for mm-hmm. every once in a while, they'll have a night of them and you watch them and you're just like and you're like hey haze. It's not just that they're so grown up mm. in their subject matter. There's adultery. There sure. is you know one of my favorite films is a secretary who's trying trying to get. Who's in having an affair with a, with her boss and is trying to get him to break up with his wife? It's done in a very adult way, and it's very interesting because once the production code came in, that sort of that sort of yeah. Co- not only did the content disappear, but the mature ex- examination of that kind of a reality of, of of human life disappeared as well, except from foreign films. You True, know? you know, for a long time. I mean, eventually yeah. the the production code was was at one point finally dismantled and. You know, in the '60s, I guess, when movies became a little more grown up, but still, the the inf- infantilization of movies as still hang- hangs on for till now. You know, it's still where we want to just tee hee hee at things rather than treat them in a in a mature way. You know. And speaking of mature jokes, let's talk about <laughs> us. The camera follow, following into the room with a, a shot right, of right because uh, she beckons. She, she beckons him in. That's right, and then we hard which seems like a trap, frankly. <laughs> I, personally, I would have picked it up as a, as a as a young man, but Harpo's a lot lot uh, cagier than me. Sure. But, but hard cut to her slippers at the foot of a bed. Oh. His whatever they are at the foot of the bed. Yeah. Oh. And then a pair of can I put this in quotation marks? Horseshoes. They're not horseshoes. They're throwing shoes from a game of horseshoes. Okay. Can we just say that David has professionally shooed horses? Yes, that's away true. from his house. Yes. <laughs> He's a he's sort of a scarecrow. Uh, he's a, yeah, he's a, a scare horse. Speaking no, he yes. has put on uh, horseshoes on horses. So those yes. were not prop, proper horses. But they read as horseshoes. There is no way a horse could wear those shoes. But, yeah. as you say, they read as horseshoes. So Because why would the horse take off his shoes to get into the... Okay, why don't anyway. you say what happens? So, yes, in the camera, we pull back and we reveal that Harpo is happily sleeping in bed with the horse. A well-trained horse, by the way. Right. We're, and not sleeping with the, and the, with the and, lady, and the lady who's sleeping in her own bed. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So they're all, it's all fine. It's fine. It's a, it's a slumber party. And you know why? Like, th- th- when you see that uh, maybe those four horse throwing horseshoes, maybe those were Harpo's, and that's how he got so lucky. <laughs> yes. I guess that's right. Is he lucky? I don't, I don't know. think so. He seems happy. Seemed happy sleeping with a horse. Sure. Sure. Once again, we cut to the war is now in progress. Sure. We are at uh, uh, Fredonian headquarters. Uh, Firefly is uh, dressed as a Union soldier. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, We're getting a lot of costumes coming a lot up. Of costumes. By the way, here's here's something I'm gonna I'm gonna go with. Going back to big musical number. We're going to war. We're going yeah. to war. Yeah, all that stuff. If the film had ended there, fine to me. That would have been fine. And then maybe like one little one gag at the very end. You know, that would have been fine. Big musical number. This is the exciting part. Yeah. I don't think anything can top that musical number. Mm. So now we're going to end on a, okay, we're going to end on something smaller. But that was the, it all led up to this, and there it goes. Oh, I would agree with you. Thank you. If this Let's sequence, just end that there. If, if this, it, we could just end the conversation there, that would be perfect. If the sequence did not have so much great stuff in it that I love so much, including the myriad costume changes by Groucho. Okay, let I me just, say that this. That is so great to me. I, I love the vase getting stuck in his head. Yeah. 
uh, Harpo painting, painting uh, his Groucho? his face on the on the on the on the vase. Right, the vase the vase bit. I think you could you could sl- slip earlier in the movie and you're fine. And and all the costume changes. That to me, because the we're going to war is so. You know, we're having modern songs. We're, we're going all over the place. I think you could have had all those costume changes in the "We're Going to War." You know, you could you could have played all the different gags within within the musical itself. I, I it e- you could even have had the the in in silent gag a harpo going and doing the horse sleeping with the horse bit. Yeah, like all of that could have been montaged into the "We're Going to War." We're going to war, and you it would have ended a da 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 da, da boo. Whereas mm, you know, no, I don't I don't it, this it feels. I don't like, think it would have been a, I don't think it would have been a satisfactory end to the film. Okay. I think you need to have like a hard finish, like a hard, like what, what is it going to happen in this war? Uh huh. And I, and, I, and, and I did, think, and did you? Yeah. Oh, okay. I think you do. I think you do get a satisfactory conclusion. And I think it's a pretty good conclusion compared well, to like, let's get to it then. Compared to horse feathers or, or, um, or monkey business where I think, you know, it kind of just trails off. I think this film does have a, like a good satisfactory conclusion to it, which is we are in Fredonian headquarters. They're, yep. they're under attack. Yeah. Things are looking bleak. Um, have, have we had the montage, by the way, of all no, not the yet. things attacking? Not okay, yet. good. Not yet. All things attacking or all things coming to rescue them? Coming to rescue. Sorry about that. Not yet. No. All right. No. Uh, we, because that actually, so, so we have, uh, so we have Firefly in his union. We, then we cut to Pinky walking through no man's land through the middle of battle with his sandwich board. Yes. Saying, join the army, see the Navy. <laughs> yes. Which is a good joke. A it good joke a good. once again. Yeah. Like, like, okay, I would agree with you about the scene if it, if I didn't feel like, Everything pays off. There's really no clinkers to me in this sequence. So it, it the laughs are steady here. Mm-hmm. And you're not exhausted by the film either because the film is so short that you get to this point in the movie, you're not like, ugh, when is this film going to end? You're just like, you know, oh, more stuff's happening. Okay. And it's funny. So I'm, I'm okay with it. Uh, then we get, uh, Chico, Chicolini, who we saw before in Sylvania headquarters, suddenly shows up with, in Fredonian because the food is better. Yeah. Uh, and then Firefly is now dressed as a Confederate officer. Um, Mrs. Teasdale phones from her her cottage where she is trapped and under bombardment. Uh, then we cut to Firefly now in a, 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 a scout uniform is taking the call. Uh, so we know he's going to have to rescue her because now he's a Boy Scout. Sure. Then they ar- arrive at, he arrives at Mrs. Teasdale's with everyone else. He's wearing a Hussars uniform. He's got the big giant <laughs> fur, uh, the kind of shako, the first, this long, t- tall uh, fur cap or fur, I guess, dress cap, whatever mm-hmm. it is exactly. Then they are trying to hold off the enemy from, from, from Mrs. Teasdale's cottage. He makes the phone call or not phone call. He call, he calls on the radio, uh, trying to call for help. And then, uh, uh, we have the thing where the enemy comes through and, and he's trying to feed, uh, I think someone gets shot. Oh yeah. Groucho gets shot. shot I think the, by, and the buttocks. Maybe by Mrs. Teasdale. It's not really clear what's happening by this point of the movie. Uh, he's, then uh, someone's trying to feed him from a from a the the water pitcher, which someone trying to a uh, uh, enemy soldier climbing over steps on it and push pull, pushes it down on Groucho's yes. head. So now he's stuck inside this uh, thing, which I love because then Harpo paints his face on it, and then they put a uh, an explosive, they put in a there. firecracker inside yep. it, and blow it off. And then Pinky, uh, and by the way, as you said before, Zeppo does not have much to do, hmm. but he does and, look and really by, good. And by the way, he, he does the firecracker thing. That would have been blackface in a Looney Tune cartoon. Mm, mm. Yeah, hundred percent. That would have been. Sure. So I was like, "Here it comes," and there we didn't. Okay, yeah. <laughs> good on you. Mm-hmm. But Zeppo looks really good in his torn undershirt and jawed purse. You got to admit it. Oh yeah, he's a good-looking guy. Yeah, it's good too bad he didn't get a romantic scene with a sexy lady. Then we have the uh, scene where they decide who's going to go out for help. Yeah. With rimshot onesie twosie, and it keeps going to Chico. Oh, it didn't work. So yeah. Basically, just cheats. 
which must be just a return to their own childhood anyway. Pinky is sent for help, but ends up in an, in an ammunition closet where yep. he accidentally sets off all the uh, all the ammunition. Uh, so it's an explosion of fireworks in there, which everyone thinks is uh, an attack from the rear. So they put a wardrobe in front of the door. So now Pinky's trapped, trapped inside in this there, room. Yeah. Then Firefly's radio message finally pays off. Then we do get the montage of help is on the way, someone says. And we get uh, fire engines, motorcycle cops, marathon runners, rowing teams, swimmers, monkeys, elephants, and finally dolphins all on the way to help them. Now, here's my question. Uh, is that the first time we've seen this kind of gag? Because that's felt... That felt uh, like something definitely that's done now. Yeah. That I can't think of anyone else having mm. done back then. Yeah. That seemed, oh. All and that's right. a that's a total McCary thing because it wouldn't, probably wasn't in the script. It was just something you added. Yeah, while, just while a rapid fire comedy yeah. montage of images. Is, yeah. Just something that was put in during editing, and then uh, Pinky escapes from the cupboard in time for the the Sylvanian troops break down the cottage door, and then they knock out the soldiers as they come in, yep. and. Uh, of course, uh, like it was in a pool room, uh, Groucho keeps, or Firefly keeps score with, you know, by pushing the little rings along the uh, curtain. And then, uh, Trentino enters, or attempts to enter. He is trapped in the door. And then they start throwing food at him. Yep. And in celebration, Mrs. T still well, gets to well, sing. Well, before, before Oops, that, not celebrate, but you could say that he surrenders. Yes. So oh, now right. war is over. War is over. And in celebration, celebration, celebration. Or salivation. Salivation. Celebration. I mean, there's a lot of food around, you gotta yeah, admit. You're right, you're right. <laughs> Mrs. Taysdale sings Hail Fredonia, only to have the hail of fruit that was once being aimed at Tritino. Right. They said to, he said to now aimed at her. I, sur- I surrender, and uh, you can surrender after we run out of fruit. Yeah, and then, yeah. yeah. Then they uh, throw it throw it at her, and that's the and that's the end. But if you watch, you can see that they're very intentionally throwing it much, much away from her, so they don't actually want to hit Margaret Dumont with fruit, unlike... Louis Calhern, who gets one right in the nose. Oh, does he? Oh, yeah. They uh, they don't want to do that to her, so they kind of throw it off to the side. There's a weird kind of noose thing hanging through the air, and I don't know if they're throwing at the noose. Hmm. And then and then Grocho, or Harpo hits the noose, and so it starts to swing, and then and then a few kind of end up more a little closer towards her. But I don't know if they're just because t- they're tired of throwing, and their arm their aim kind of kind of leaves or what what happens there. But yes, the movie ends on a high note, according to me, with uh, Grocho in his Davy Crockett. Or not Davy Crockett. Yeah, Davy Crockett's yeah. uh, coonskin cap that, of course, Pinky cuts with scissors. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one more of those bits. So do you think uh would have been better with the uh, they all go into heaven and... Uh, no, I don't like that. I don't like that ending. I like the ending they have in the film. I think it's better. Yeah. Yeah. I like... Uh, I just like, what I like, like... What I really love about this movie is the cartoonishness of it. I do love... I like the... Like, I just love the, the, the change of costumes and stuff in that sequence where it just makes no sense. Why is he... Why? What? What's going on? Why is he suddenly like? But it's fun. It's because, just for fun. You know, if you want to be that kind of person, you go like, yeah. "It's war. Is it real war? Yeah. No, it's it's war. It's just movie war. It's cartoon war. Mm-hmm. It's all war. So we're going to do all the different costumes that you would have for war. And what works? I was actually reading a book by an author named Roy, Roy uh, Blount Jr., which is a very good um, or Ray Blount Jr. Anyway, Blount Jr. Who um, I happened to see the film uh, at at a revival house in New York City. And he went there and he saw it with a bunch of mums and their kids. And when, what year was this? Around? Recently. Recently, okay. Yeah, all yeah right. like in the last five years, let's say. Oh, all right. And his reaction when he was there was, well, no no one's going to like this movie. This is like an old movie. Like, how are, what are kids going to think of this movie? But to his surprise, they loved it. Mm-hmm. Kids just loved the film. Sure. And uh, they particularly loved things that we didn't like, like we might not like as much as the kids like, like things like... The lemonade stand stuff. Yeah, like I was that. gonna go like they love huge, the Harpo stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. they got a huge laugh from them. Also, they get that. 
They understand yeah. it. It's yeah. tactile. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas concepts and verbal, yeah, you know, they love. And there's a scene in the near the end of the film where um where Groucho asks for a Stradivarius and he opens yes. it up and he takes a sort of Thompson submachine gun, which is sort of a reference to the gangster films of that period. And then he starts shooting it, uh, shooting out the window, you know, and, and doing that kind of eh, take that you yeah. and then Steppo's trying to his yeah. own people, yeah. Shooting his own soldiers, which once again the kids love that in the theater because it you know plays to their their idea of humor and stuff like that, and it works because it doesn't show if it showed what was happening it would be terrible, mm. but because they're just really kind of seeing him firing and then making no sound effects, it does it's not so horrifying you know the fact that he's shooting his own his own men. <laughs> oh Groucho, you inept president. Oh, what did he think of it like watching it uh, in the theater? Did he mention his own point of view? Oh yeah, he lo- yeah he loved he, he loved it? that film. All right, yeah. cool. Um, I mean, he has problems with it, obviously. The, 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 when the Armstrong married the Headstrongs or whatever yeah. thing is, you know. It's, it's, it's interesting making a movie about war that doesn't, again, cause it's, it'd be weird nowadays to make a movie about war without any particular statement about, about war. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um. Yeah, like they, they've all said we weren't making a, a satire. We were making a comedy. Right. You know, they, the movie has no opinion. It's just a movie that makes jokes about the situation. Though, uh, and maybe this was uh, just something that was said to be said, but uh, you know what movie was made uh, fairly recently uh, that uh, that the, the 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 person who wrote and starred in it uh, said that their character was in his mind a descendant of Fireflies. Okay, and and contained that same kind of anarchist uh, spirit was uh, Sasha Baron Cohen and the Dictator. Okay. He was playing, he was going, I'm going to try to get a Groucho like beat in there. So, you know, he does horrible things, but, you know, uh, done, done comedically. I have not seen that movie, so I cannot comment on it. No, that. you can't, nor should you. Uh, because, you know, it might also be a lie, but that's something that, uh, that has been said. But, but it's, let me it's, just say about that movie. Oh, please. No, but something, yeah, something that's, uh, you know, it's war. And you're not super far, you know, so far away from like, you know, the great war at yeah. the time. So what does war mean to people? Is war a thing that you, that you laugh at? Are you laughing at? It feels like they're laughing in this at movies ideas of war more than war, war's ideas of yeah. war. Yeah. Uh, but if we're going for any kind of like, you know, comeuppance, it does make sense at the end, you know, though I know they're just throwing the fruit at the lady who's singing and her notes are wrong. Yeah. But like, they're all in this mess because of her. Yeah. You know, she was in love with this fella. Got a guy who shouldn't have been elected, elected. Yeah. She's pumping up the whole Fredonia, Fredonia thing. She's singing the national anthem at the top of her lungs and, and pumping everybody up. Yeah. So they all go end up go to war because of her. Yeah. So yeah, she does get the fruit and the puss at the end. <laughs> that hundred uh, percent makes oh, sense. So you did like Especially that Especially when she's singing the national anthem. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah, that okay. works. That works fine. Oh, that's good. So, it so sounds I'm, like, I'm putting sounds symbolism. Like you agree with me. I'm putting symbolism in there. That's not. It's just. Yeah. I feel it's yeah. just. It's chaos. I, it's I think chaos. it's more aimless than than that. And I don't think that that's what people who worked on Marx Brothers films at that time, their idea of the Marx Brothers film was a plotless, uh, you know, just personality-driven vehicle for yeah. them to make jokes of, the, of their particular kind. And this movie, to me, is kind of the ultimate of that in a way, in the sense of, you know, like later films, uh, Groucho will be playing like a desk clerk in, in, a, in a hotel, let's say. But it feels like he is just a desk clerk in a hotel. Whereas in this movie, he is, he is, yes, he's a dictator of a country, but he's laying in bed with a bed full of crackers. That's another thing I love in the sequence I love in this film is, uh, and if, if you're coming over, bring some cheese. <laughs> I just love that he's laying in bed just eating crackers. Like we all know that it's bad to eat crackers and cheese. Everyone are crackers in bed. Everyone knows this is not a good idea. And yet he is insisting on eating crackers in bed, sure. not just one or two. 
he has like 50 crackers that he's laying in bed with. Of you know, it's just makes great. Sense. It's, it's why, great. That's why the kids like it. It's great. Yeah. But yeah. So. And they would have liked the mirror sequence too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. And that's maybe. If they can get past the black and white. Had you kids s- today now have uh, issues with that. I, my daughters are well, well trained. Um, had you, was this the first time you saw the movie, the, this movie then? Yes. Okay. I've seen scenes, obviously. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's hard for me to, to judge it in lots of ways because I, when I saw it, I was a kid. Yeah. You know, I saw it as a, as a young, as a young, probably as a teenager, but, you know, an early, like, junior high school age teenager. And I just thought this movie was the best. Just the bomb. Just the greatest thing ever. And at that time, I was not as, I probably, I don't think I liked the joke. The joke we've talked about as being not great, I, you know, that probably didn't sit sit with me very well. But, but I just thought that movie the movie was just great in so many ways, so many ways. Cool. I would I kind of oscillate between Duck Soup and Monkey Business as my favorite films because I think that personally I think that Duck Soup is a stronger film over its length, its entire length, whereas Monkey Business is very strong and then has a precipitous drop off in the third act. Has a has a tough ending. Yeah. yeah. Whereas to me, Duck Soup is strong from the Beginning all the way to the end, and it, everything works in it, the movie. To, to Did me. you miss? And I will, I will, I will say, I missed it. Uh, I missed uh, Chico playing piano, and I missed Harpo yeah. playing the harp. I thought that was a mistake, and that I was th- that think- was at the insistence of of uh, of Groucho. He did not enjoy the. He just felt it was a bore to have that stuff in the movie. He's not wrong, and yet what it does is it gives both of those characters another a little depth. Yeah, a little something, mm-hmm. and it makes them, and makes them, makes Harpo magical. Yeah, uh, and it makes Chico uh, empathetic. It, yeah, it gives it gives them heart. Yeah, and so when they're doing, so it's not just chaos, chaos, chaos. Mm-hmm. And I think you had to me it was yeah. too much frosting, not enough cake. And there's plenty of time for it. Like I said, the movie is. In I, fact, they almost start. It seems like they're going to at one point. Yeah, he's where he opens the, up a piano and mm-hmm. he's like plucking at the at the strings and like, yeah, uh, Chico play the piano, or you just play the harp and the piano. Yeah, uh, you're not gonna. No. And it's weird because, like, again, they're not my favorite parts of the movies, but I think that they're necessary. Mm. I love, uh, actually, I love, I love the piano parts of, uh, of the films. And I do miss it in that movie. And that's one, that's why I will kind of oscillate between Monkey Business and, and, and Duck Soup because I think they're both super great films. And Monkey Business has the piano playing and the harp playing. Yeah. And it does have an ending that I'm not super fond, that I don't think is super strong. Duck Soup, great all the way through. Missing the piano in the heart. Let's go with it that it's uh, flavoring because it is a duck soup, and I think it's <laughs> missing the sweet. Yeah, you know, and and both of those things add a little sweet to 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 the character and let everyone uh, do their own thing, and yeah. it makes everything else everything everything else better. And so instead, it was all it was all go 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 through the mm-hmm. whole thing with yeah. no no pauses and no not even an annoying love song uh, <laughs> breaking it up and having yeah. someone sing it to yeah. someone. Well, I'm not sad to, that that's not in the movie. Again, I'm not a fan of the love songs, but yeah. surprise, surprise to me, they took out the stuff that I'm not the biggest fan of, and I went, ah, oh, nuts, you need it for, this, for well, this to work. I mean, everyone says, I love you. I like that song a lot. Like, I think that's, mm-hmm. that's a love song that works. And Kelmer and sure. Ruby had a sense of humor that they could, and a, you know, a sense of songwriting, uh, their style of songwriting that worked for the Marx Brothers really well. And I think, they could have had a love song in Duck Soup. That would have been good. You know, I just don't like, like in The Coconuts, where you get like a soppy love song or mm-hmm. Animal Crackers, even though that's a Kilmer and Ruby song. The song in the film is kind of a soppy song, and it's not right. of, it's not very fun. Everyone says I Love You made sense because you sang it once straight, and then you sang yeah, it. Yeah. And the, the other three times it, yeah. are done through the character's eyes, so For it's sure. all nice character moments. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, and Gro- this one maybe it was just a little too Groucho heavy, mm-hmm. um, with you know him doing all all his bits. I don't know. I don't know why it didn't connect with me. Maybe it was there wasn't enough of anything to bounce against. It's like you Are know you- I like the cruise ship because yeah. the cruise ship's full of stiffs. Now we get to have chaos breaking this up. Yeah. But we start from the very beginning with. Here's this country I've never heard of, and it's all and things are crazy from the get go. Yeah, and they're all but everything's bananas, and it's well, it, it builds up to crazy sure. even more bananas, uh-huh. and that's the end of it. Now we're literally throwing fruit at the end. Okay, it's fine, but it, there's nothing to rebel against. Why do I care that you're throwing fruit at this guy uh, who's in stocks? What was his plot again? Was there a lady? What happened to her? Is Zeppo around? What's going on? Oh, okay, it's fine. It's it's fine, huh. but you know, good a lot of good bits that I don't think hang together because there was nothing to hang them on. Yeah, there was no wall yeah. to hang them on, so it's a lot of beautiful pictures on the floor to me. There you go, like those are pretty. Yeah, it's fine. It's it's definitely a, it definitely challenges a comedy taste to a degree, and but that was a believe it or not a super popular uh, comedy style of that time. Like I, we're talking about Million Dollar Legs, that movie is just dumb. It's this crazy. Mm-hmm. But it's great. Oh, and you can you can make a movie like that. It's just it's a lot of heavy lifting, and yeah. every joke has to work. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, it's got to be you got to bowl a perfect game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do. Uh, you got nothing to. Uh, and the interesting myth the myth about Duck Soup is that it was a failure at the box office. It was not a failure at the box office. It did quite well actually. It was a failure to Paramount because they were hoping for a Horse Feathers level a success. It was the sixth highest grossing film of the 40 movies they released that year but it made its money back it and made its money back it did, did well enough yes i mean well enough that we're going to be still doing this podcast for a couple more weeks so clearly more movies were made but not by paramount okay but someone thought yeah for sure you know um might as well make more but i think yeah i think the the political political things the movie studio politics around the Marx brothers pretty much made paramount uh, n- not going to work. But they did try to resign them after Duck Soup. Huh. They didn't. They didn't just let them go. They wanted to resign them. It was the Marx Brothers who didn't want to return to Paramount. Um, they felt that Paramount didn't wasn't giving them all the support that they that they needed. And but I, you know, like like I said at the beginning of the ep- uh, the episode, though Duck Soup didn't perform as well as Horse Feathers. That's true. But no movies performed as well as as their counterparts from the year before, because. There was the, the depression was steadily deepening, and it was just getting harder and harder for people to to enjoy themselves. You know, and movies were were a leisure activity that could be cut out of your life if you could not afford to go there. And a lot of people who were suffering through the throes of this horrible time period did not have the money to go and enjoy themselves. They had to eat, they had to clothe their kids, they had to pay for their their you know housing. They couldn't afford to go to the films, and so there was a slow over time, a slow, steady, downward uh, attendance of films, and, and Duck Soup was part of that. Yeah. But in no way was it a failure. It was a popular film. I think because there was friction between Groucho and, well, between the Marx Brothers and McCary during the making of the film, because of McCary's style and the fact that, you know, they're, in their style, they're, they're kind of lackadaisical, come in at noon, you know, do a couple hours work and then leave again, attitude. Uh, you know, I think there was a lot of friction between the director and the actors. And I think that gave the movie for them a sourness, you know. And for a long time, Groucho did not like uh, Duck Soup, considered it a failure. I uh, would much prefer the MGM movies. And it wasn't until the revival of interest in the Marx Brothers in the late 60s, early in early 70s, 
when people started to appreciate the Marx Brothers films again, particularly the, the Paramount films, particularly the style of Paramount films, that he came around and, and started to appreciate those movies again. Hmm. Harpo and Chico never got to see those movies revived. They they were dead before before that happened. But luckily for Groucho, he lived long enough to be able to see those movies and Zeppo, I guess, too, get to see those movies. Uh, finally, get the 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 tributes, you know, the the whatever word I'm looking yeah. for that they deserved. They get the whatever they deserved. They got whatever they deserved. Just sorry they didn't live long enough to uh, hear podcasts talking about them. And yeah, <laughs> that would have been the cherry on the cake for them. Yeah, the though they would have cherry. been scary old by this point. Yeah. yeah, we would have thought something's clearly wrong. That's right. This shouldn't there's, be happening. There's a painting somewhere. Why is yeah, yeah. Some, something shouldn't be allowing this. <laughs> yeah, so to, f- fair enough. Um, so there we go. That brings us to the end of Duck Soup. That, well, it gives, brings us not, not just to the end. Sorry, no, no it brings it us doesn't. to the end. My, of, mista- my mistake. No, no, you're right. It brings us to the end of Duck Soup, but not just Duck Soup. It brings us to the close of the Marx Brothers' career, of, of you know, of their Paramount career and their movie career of this sort. We're going to start a whole different style of film next. All right. The movies are going to change radically. In, 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 in a, and what is way. our next film? Our next film is A Night of the Opera. Very good. That's uh, that's what we're going to do. We'll uh, be here. Another really great film. In in two weeks' time. Uh, if you want to... Do you know what's funny? Oh, uh, the as film. As soon as... According to you. Yeah. But as soon as we uh, like, as soon as soon we do this show, like yes. record the show, I'm going to go home and I'm going to watch A Night of the Opera tomorrow night. Or or as soon as I can. Like, as soon as I have the chance to see the next film, I'm, just, I'm all over it. I just nice. Can't, I can't wait. I'm going to be hunting it down. Because oh. this is the end of my Blu-ray oh, collection. Oh, yeah, yeah. Though yeah. I think it might have uh, been on television. I may have recorded it. We'll see. Uh, but I'll hunt it. I'll hunt it down. We'll, we'll find. Some of these are tricky. Yes. But that is a challenge there, that I have. Okay. Uh, there is a there is myself. a box set available. Very good. Of their MGM films. Um, but hey, so, so there you go. Now you know that. So you can uh, you can listen along. You with can us. keep along. Yeah. Now uh, we may be wrong about many of the things we've said, uh, and we would love you to uh, correct us. Or uh, go, yeah, no, you were right. Either way is good. Uh, here's how you're going to go about doing that. You're going to contact us through our Sneaky Dragon uh, ways of contact. That is, of course, our other podcast. So if you go to SneakyDragon.com, you will find uh, a link on there to uh, to all of these uh, Full Marks podcasts. Also, our past podcasts on the Beatles and Tintin, because we do these things with no theme in sight. Um, sorry, I'm watching a skateboarder across the street almost get hit by a car many times. Forget about that. That's not your problem. Uh, go to SneakyDragon.com. I'll let you know if he's okay. Uh, SneakyDragon.com and uh, leave us a message underneath the episode or uh, go to our email, SneakyD at SneakyDragon.com. That's SneakyD at SneakyDragon.com. We're on Twitter, Sneaky underscore Dragon. Uh, at sneaky underscore dragon. We're also on Tumblr, sneakydragon.tumblr.com. Probably on other things too, but that's all you really need to know. Uh, again, we want to know what you think. What do you think of the movie? What, anything that we missed? Let us know. And, uh, and we will see you again if you're listening right on the day this drops in two weeks. If you're listening in a different order or time, eh, whatever, whatever. Live your life. That's the way podcasts go. It's all fine. That's right. You do you. You do you exactly. And if you feel like reviewing us on iTunes, we would appreciate that. It helps people to find uh, find the find the podcast. So just go on to iTunes, give us a little ranking, give us a little write up, and uh, we will give you uh, a thank you. Not after the fact, is that now? We'll thank you now. We'll thank you in advance. Thanks, Dave. You thank them. Uh, thank you. Okay. Thanks very much. Even if it's a bad one, it's fine. It's up to you. Thank, Be honest if you want. Uh, I've been Ian Boothby. I've been. David Dedrick. Yeah, yeah. At the end of one of these, you sometimes forget, right? <laughs> I was going to say Groucho Marx. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, and this has I've been... I've been Waldorf T. Crocodile. Sure. Okay. Well, I'll see you later, alligator. I've been Quagmire J. Rusticus. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll get a tetanus shot after this. <laughs> uh, and this has been Full Mark's uh, Duck Soup. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.